Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Good morning, family. Thanks for starting your day with us again. Later, black politics expert Dr. James Taylor will be back in our classroom. Dr. Taylor will update us on the California reparations movement. And Dr. Taylor also examining the fight for the black vote. Dr. Taylor also explain how the independent candidates are impacting the presidential race. But to get us started, music historian Bill Carpenter is here. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. How are you doing? Excellent. How about yourself? Feel great. You know, Bill, I was just starting with Kevin. Good morning, Kevin. You know, good morning, we, gentlemen. How you feeling? We were having a conversation about the Grammys. You know, did you watch the Grammys the other night? I did not, which is sort of rare. I it's just sort of, I don't know. I, I don't follow a lot of the music that's really popular now, so I didn't watch, but I heard that Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman performed, so then I went online to see that because I grew up with that song by Tracy Chapman and then Luke Combs recently made it popular. And it's, that was, that was an amazing thing to see. Yeah. And the fact that Luke Combs covered it, brought it back to relevance in America and uh, the world. And uh, yet it's always been an award winning song to me. And yet uh, Tracy Chapman was happy, man, that uh, the audience, loved it and accepted her it uh, just looked like a whole different world and i only saw clips of it as well yeah and just a few months ago it won it allowed tracy chapman to be the first person of color man or woman to win a cma award as songwriter of the year for that song oh wow Fast car so yeah. originally what 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 genre was it uh, under when, when it came when she did the first go around was it country I believe it no no not country uh when that came out in 88 i think tracy was just considered sort of a pop artist hmm. you know there, there was no lane for what she is considered now now she would be called americana or maybe alternative rock she, she clearly was not an r&b artist but you know there was no lane she sort of paved that road <laughs> with that record. Yeah, I think uh, I think now she did some of her exposure on MTV, so that would give her that kind of uh, alternative music genre as well. So I thought, yeah, well that's 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 pretty much a rock audience at that time. Right, right. I, I grew up watching MTV, you know, and and the handful of black artists that they played, you know, Tina Turner, Ball of Confusion. Prince, when doves fly, you know they. It was music that could be played on pop radio. 
Well, let me ask you. <laughs> let me ask you about the Grammys, bad. though, uh, uh, because it seems like there's a whole bunch of folks who've never won a Grammy. You know, yeah, including including Diana Ross, Tupac, and never Snoop. You know, some of the contemporaries have, have never won. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Brian McKnight, they never won a, a Grammy. The artists that you deal with, Nicki Minaj, never won a Grammy. Is the Grammy a big deal? Is is, is it something they want? Because, you know, we saw, I don't know if you, you say you didn't watch it, but Jay-Z was criticizing that his wife didn't get album of the year, but she's won so many Grammys. That. Yeah. So is it is it really a big deal to to be, uh, you know, and how do, do you know how they vote? Yeah, I do know how they vote. I'm a voting member of the Grammy. <laughs> which, oh, which it's your fault then. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Bill's fault. Yeah. Diana Ross. Hey, Kevin, when you get off, call Diana Ross and tell her Bill won't give her a, a Grammy. She won't answer my Wait. calls. I love her. <laughs> well, you got to remember, it's it's a small group of people. It's it's basically a few thousand people vote, and 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 since Harvey Mason, you know, the renowned jazz session player. Uh, took over the organization after years of, you know, sort of controversy. You know, Michael Green, who was president at one time, stepped down because of, you know, sexual harassment charges, allegations. Um, And then a woman took over, and she was accused of just being mean and evil. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So they brought in this man of color who has, you know, impeccable, history, Harvey Mason, uh, to just sort of clean up the image and, and make it fair again, because there was also this thing where they had these committees that would, okay, everybody votes who can vote. And then these committees would pick and choose who was in the final five. And people didn't like that. So Harvey Mason got rid of that. So that might have been when a Diana Ross or an Elvis Presley didn't make the final because these committees would pick, okay, out of these five people, I want this person to win. And and that's not fair. If, 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 if this person got the most votes, that's who should win. Now, you bring it up to, to today with Jay-Z complaining about Beyonce not getting album of the year. But I don't feel like anybody at this point, if the voting is fair, which I have no reason to believe it isn't, you know, they don't owe you an award. It, it's this group of people decided this is who we like. So, I mean, if you don't like it, you can create an alternative award show. I mean, that's pretty much what happened years ago when Dick Clark created the American Music Awards. You know, he wanted to be able to put his he wanted something that the fans could vote on. The, the fans vote on the American Music Awards. The music industry votes on the Grammys. Two different things. You know, the fans might support uh, a Nicki Minaj or a Cardi B, whereas other people in the industry look on them like, they don't deserve this. They're, you know, they're, they're this, they're that. You know, but... The Grammys have always been important. Uh, they were created around the 1958-59 period, you know, to begin honoring. And it it just became something because it stayed around. And as, as they went along, they created new categories. Like, for example, they wanted to – they loved Mahalia Jackson. 
and they wanted to give her a Grammy, but she didn't fit any of the categories. So they created a gospel category. You know, years later, after disco started to make a move, they created a disco category. Then a decade later after that, a hip-hop category. You know, so it evolves with time. So when those, uh, they still have, uh, uh, you know, a, a disco counter or, or was the oh, music no, fake? they got rid of that. They got rid of that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got, so now they would call it just dance music. They do have okay. a dance category. So anything disco-oriented would go in that, that category. So Mahalia Jackson did win a Grammy. That's, that's good to know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, during her lifetime, yeah. Was it a lifetime or was it, you know, did they... they talk about you know who's in the running they name it like five maybe four oh, yeah. or five artists oh, yeah, they have five. yeah 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 you know back in her time the people who were nominated would be uh the edwin hawkins singers um uh marion williams uh a whole lot of people we wouldn't even know of today you know because they didn't have a big company like CVS keeping their name alive. So people have forgotten, you know, but people like Clara Ward, you know, they were nominated for Grammys. So having said all of that, would you say it's a popularity contest then? No, I don't. Because I don't remember what year it was. There was this big controversy a few years ago. Herbie Hancock did this record celebrating the music of Joni Mitchell. And it was a sleeper hit. It wasn't a big seller. Um, I mean, of course, Herbie Hancock was a legendary uh, musician. And he just did this sort of quiet record that celebrated the music of Joni Mitchell. And then it won album of the year. Well, you got to think about it. Most of the people, well, most of the people who voted are musicians or singers behind-the-scenes people, and they respect Herbie Hancock, but maybe they just like the record. And so it beat out some really big pop artists that year. And people were like, this is ridiculous. How how does this record nobody listen to successful? But after it won the Grammy, then it did sell. So it's not a popularity contest. You know, because if it was a popularity contest, then Beyonce probably would have won. Jay-Z would have been happy, you know. But but you think about it, Jay-Z won an award this year, but he's not the most popular male rapper right now. Well, is it more of a publicity award then? No, it's, it's these few thousand people who vote. It's who they like. That's wow. as simple as that. It's who they like because it's, a, it's, a, it's an award among your peers. Now, some people are popular among their peers, and some are not. Like, for example, Diana Ross has, until recently, had sort of a negative image among her peers. You know, she called her Miss Ross. And and then there are some people who never forgave her for leaving the Supremes and felt like Cindy Birdsong and Mary Wilson didn't get a fair treatment from Diana Ross or, or Barry Gordy played favorites with Diana Ross. So people, whether any of this is true or not, those feelings were put on Diana Ross. I believe that kept her from being popular enough among the voting body to win. 
so let's let's bring it up to date. So we say the same about Drake because Drake is is you know he's, he's claiming he's being ignored and he's you know putting down the Grammys. He's, his peers don't care for him. Is that what is that what that indicates? I believe so. I believe so. I mean, because a lot again, a lot of people feel like it is your personal behavior. You you can't go on TV in one breath and demean the Grammys and then expect them to want to give you. It, it's a prestigious, for the most part, the people who vote in the Grammys. I don't want to say this not. But they feel like a certain type of person deserves to win. And if you're up here bad-mouthing the Grammys, I don't think you should expect them to support you. Just like with the Oscars. It's, it's so funny. It's like people want there to be this quota on the Oscars that this many people, this many black people, or this many brown people are supposed to win when it's supposed to be based on the voting body, those are the people who are in the film world, have decided these are the five films, these are the five actresses or actors that we like. It's not a quota system. It's, this is who we like. Maybe we didn't care for, you know, Fantasia's performance in The Color Purple or, or Angela Bassett's performance. I don't remember what film she was nominated for last year, but... but uh, uh, Jamie, uh, oh gosh, I can't. The Fox. daughter of Tony Curtis, uh, Jamie Lee, won the Kurt award. Lee. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't see either film, so I, I'm not a voter in the Oscars, so I can't say. But you know, there were a lot of people who were very happy for Jamie Lee Curtis because she's been out here a long time too. So, is there a checklist for to win the Grammy? You got to go through etiquette, and uh, you check their. The, their image and the way they dressed and the way, but, <laughs> how many drinks they had that night. But, well, well, not that night because you're not voting that day. You vote weeks in advance. Right. You no, know, we get we get. You know, years ago we used to get an envelope that would be mailed to a uh, uh, an accounting firm, and I think it was in Chicago actually, an accounting firm like Deloitte and Tooch or something, and. And you'd have to sign your signature and all this stuff, almost like an affidavit. But now you do it online. Hmm. Let's say in August, we get these categories. You can submit. Like if Carl Nelson did a record, I could submit that record in August. By October, the first ballot is available. We can go online. And I'm telling you, some of the categories have literally hundreds of people in there, like 500, 600 people. Wow. And you have to go through and pick your five favorites out of this. When you, when you think about the final five, you've gone through hundreds of people to get to these final five. Yeah. Because Bill, hold that thought right there because we're going to take a quick break. I'm glad, I'm, uh, glad that you shared that information with us, but we got to take a group break. When we come back, we want to talk about black music influence on the civil rights because you mentioned civil rights movements. Uh, so we'll, let, you're the man on this hour, so we're going to uh, check with you when we get back. Family, you too can join this conversation. Reach out to us at 800 450 7876. Phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. W-O-L where information is power. 
And good morning once again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour, discussing the influence of black music on the civil rights movement with music historian, historian Bill Carpenter. Bill, I'm going to let you finish your thought. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Yeah, we were just talking about how Grammy's votes are. All the record labels and professional members submit their songs they want you to consider for the Grammys in the summer. And then the Grammy committees go through, make sure everything's in the right category, make sure the rock songs in the rock category, the R&B songs in the R&B and so forth. And then in October... We receive a ballot online. It used to be a paper ballot, but now we receive an, an email. You press the email, you put in your password, and you go in. And, and the album category, like those top categories, the one Jay-Z was uh, concerned about, Beyonce never winning, album of the year category, there are literally hundreds of entries in that category. So if you just you know, most people aren't going to do that kind of work to actually listen to all 600, 700 records. So they gravitate to the names they know or the people they know, just like when you, you go to the voting box and vote for your local politicians. Most people vote for who they know. And um, so that's why you get the nominees that you get. People vote for the famous names, the names they've heard the most. Or maybe if you read Billboard magazine. And someone took out a full-page ad that put it on your mind. These these are the things that play into it. Or maybe you go into it knowing, I want to vote for, like, John Baptiste or, or The Roots or, or some other group that you personally like. And, and, you, and you don't even have to fill out all five categories. Uh, I mean, um, you don't have to put a name in all five. You can just put the one name that you do like in. And people do that. Yeah, so then yeah, all that happens. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I, I'm thinking for sharing that with us because uh, last month, uh, uh, um, January 15th, uh, Martin Luther King's birthday, we had Ira Tucker on. Ira Tucker was Stevie's, uh, Stevie's publisher at the time. His sister sang in the Supremes, and his, his dad was the lead singer for the Dixie Hummingbirds. Well, you know, Stevie re- released uh, Hotter Than July. has a lot of great songs on it. Uh, Rocket Love. Blaster was on that. Yeah, that was his first attempt at doing reggae. He told me, uh, Cash in Your Face, I Ain't Gonna Stand For It. But he also had the, the Happy Birthday song for, for Dr. Martin Luther Martin King. Martin Luther King. Yeah, yeah, and that that album didn't receive any nominations, and we all we thought that because he put the Happy Birthday song on the album, that's that's why it was totally ignored. And what you tell me probably just validates what we were thinking at the time. Yeah, well, actually, the thing is, we do we do we know who? You know, like Motown may not have submitted that, 
record or that particular song. I mean, uh, they might have been pressing for something else from that record to to be nominated. You know, uh, it's funny because just recently, Matthew Knowles, Beyonce's father, was on some program, sort of piggybacking on what Jay Z said. He said he was going back to the Columbia days when Destiny's Child was there, and he was claiming Destiny's Child didn't get nominated for certain projects or records because Columbia had some other artists they wanted to have nominated instead. But the thing is, if you're in a structure like that, you don't have to do what they want. At that point, they had enough credentials that they could join as professional members of the Grammys and submit themselves. So I think a lot of people say things just to get, you know, um, attention or to make a social media soundbite happen, you know, but in fact, you know, because Matthew Knowles is a very shrewd businessman. I think he knows that you don't have to wait for Columbia to submit anything. And it's the same thing back then. With, with Stevie Wonder, he if if they really want Happy Birthday to be submitted, they could have done that. Now I check that with him. You know uh, that's interesting though what what you just said because we're going to talk about Motown too in in the civil rights movement because they played a role as well. So, and we and that's what basically we start off talking. So let's take some calls before we get into it though. Mark in Baltimore has a question for you, Bill. He's online too. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, gentlemen. Very interesting discussion. My question is, in the contribution to civil rights music, I just wonder how much influence came um, of the music that we now hear come from other cultures. For instance, I'm in the Jewish community, for example, or the Latino community or Italian or anything like that. How much from each of those cultures contributed to the buildup of music that we now hear uh, today, uh, describing the civil rights movement in different uh, genres? Um, right. So that's what I wanted to know. All right. Thanks, Mark. Bill? Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I think there's a great deal of, you know, the problem with today is a lot of times people don't want to tell you where they get their ideas because then they feel like they might have to pay that songwriter or something. You know, and then that's why these artists end up in court fighting. For example, look at... Uh, Pharrell and Robin Thicke. They take Marvin Gaye's song, Got to Give It Up, turn it into blurred lines, put it out, and then act like nobody's going to notice the similarities to Got to Give It Up. And and actually, I saw an interview where someone said, well, what's the Marvin Gaye connection here? And they're like, what are you talking about? There's, there's no connection. But when I first heard the song, before Robin started singing, I thought it was Got to Give It Up. I said, oh, it's interesting. They play Got to Give It Up on this station. But uh, to, to Mark's question, I, I think, especially in hip-hop, those guys listen to everything. They listen to so much different music that it's shocking how smart they are. They'll, they'll take something. They'll, they'll go to like old jazz, you know, John Coltrane or Max Roach and stuff like that. And they'll just take some little segment and use it in something 
and they turn it into something totally different. And and it's, it's pretty amazing, you know. But they uh, they just they used to go to vinyl shops and just look for all kinds of old records that people hadn't heard before. They'll they'll be looking for a, a drum pattern or a, a horn loop. Um, I know there's an old song by uh, Eugene Record, uh, The Twilights, that they used to create Crazy in Love for Beyonce. Uh, you know, I can't think of the, the name of the original song, but it's a song by The Twilights. And, and Marshall uh, Thompson, he's still alive, right? I think he is. Uh, yeah, he's still here he, with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's talked a great deal about that song and and uh you know because at first they didn't give him credit <laughs> you know you're talking about getting credit they they took this very prominent horn section from his song and uh but they ended up giving him credit but well all the th- right there so they took the horn section if 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 that was all they took do they still have to give him credit did he still does the uh, oh, yeah. marshall thompson still have oh he does yeah, because it, it it was enough of it. I mean, there I don't have it in front of me, but there's a certain amount of time that you can use uh, without giving credit. But they went over that, <laughs> so it, it's like second. It, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I think it's like it's a matter of seconds, like four seconds. But then if you go to five seconds, you have to give credit. It's something like that. And um, But when you loop it throughout, and people – and that's that's one of the reasons people buy the music is because they're hearing something familiar. Like when Angie Stone did uh, No Rain in My Clouds, which had a bit of an old Gladys Knight in the Pips song. I think it was maybe neither one of us wants to be the first to say goodbye. Uh, part of what makes people like it, even before they realize, oh, that's an old Gladys Knight song, there's something familiar. And that's what draws people in. Because people tend to, they've done studies that found that people do not decide they really like music until they've heard it about six months constantly. Because there's songs people will hear and say, oh, I don't like that song. But they keep hearing it on the radio and eventually, oh, I do like that song. You know, radio programmers have told me this. There's a whole strategy to how they get songs played and how people decide they like music. Like even now, some of the most popular songs on streaming sites are not getting great radio play. And then people wonder, well, why are they so strong on, on streaming sites when they're not getting the radio play? It's because people have heard these songs over years. There's a window that you get radio play on commercial radio. Uh, and But then there's all these stations, but then a lot of these people don't even listen to those stations. You know, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, I heard it through the grapevine. It's, it's as popular now in terms of weekly streams as it would have been in 1967 or 8 when it first came out. I'm, I'm telling you, there's many people listening to it now as in 68. And that's because 
over the years. It's been in commercials. It's been in films. It's, it's been on the radio. It's been around you. So these are the songs that stay with us. You know, all, you think about all the Motown catalog, Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch, uh, My Girl, My Guy, uh, It Takes Two, Baby. These songs have stayed in our collective consciousness because there's always something to remind us about the song, whether it's a commercial, whether it's a movie. If you're in a shopping center and it's in the overhead, yeah. Hold that thought right there, Bill. We've got to take another quick break. And when we come back, Brother Brown in Virginia has a question for you. Family, you two can join this conversation with Bill Carpenter. He's a music historian discussing the influence of black music on the civil rights movement. What are your thoughts? 800-450-7876. Those are the magic numbers. And we'll take your calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 22 minutes away from the top of the hour, discussing the influence of black music on the civil rights movement, as this is Black History Month, along with music historian Bill Carpenter. Go back to Bill in a moment. Just to remind you, later this morning, we're going to speak with the black politics expert, Dr. James Taylor. And then in the next few days, you're going to hear from Dick Gregory's youngest son, Johansi Gregory, is going to join us, and civil rights activist Willie Ricks. Willie Ricks, he marched with Dr. King and also with uh, Stokely Carl, Michael Kwame Ture. He was there part of SNCC with uh, Mayor for Life, Marion Barry, and also uh, John Lewis. He, he's part of that group. So these are, they're all going to be here this week. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. As I mentioned before we left for the break, Brother Brown was holding for us. He's in Virginia. He's got a question or a comment for Bill. Good morning, Brother Brown. Good morning, everybody. Um, happy African Heritage Month. Um, um, I do have a, a question as well as a comment. Um, since we were touching on uh, music and, and music and the civil rights influence, I still have to go back to to our beloved gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson. Um, and probably as everybody does know, her and Martin Luther King had a symbiotic relationship. You know, Martin Luther King used to always call Mahalia and, and ask her to speak at uh, to speak at his marches and things like that. And in which she did. Um, also, you know what she? Um, I mean, you know, she was very. I mean, she was a very powerful and world-renowned singer. I know when she did the controversial movie, um, Imitation of Life, and she sung that beautiful song, Trouble, Trouble of This World. That was that, that was an historic movie at that time because, you, know, you know, that was about that was about race relations. And, of course, you know, she was a, she sung a, a Martin Luther King's um, um, Martin Luther King's funeral. Now, my question is that um, in terms of who won Grammys, now, Paul Robeson, you know, he was sung worldwide, and, you know, and he had a voice, uh, you know, that everybody wanted to hear. Did Paul Robeson, did he ever win a Grammy? And then, the, and, then, and then Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones, did they win a Grammy when they made that pivotal uh, world song, We Are the World? Those are my questions. All right. Thanks, Brother Brown. Hey, Brother Brown. Uh Wow. I, I don't know offhand if We Are the World won a Grammy, but I do know Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson won many Grammys for uh, Off the Wall and Thriller. Uh, 
Yeah, it did win a Grammy for writing with Lionel and Michael. Oh, it did? Okay, great. And uh, Paul Robeson, I I don't know that he ever won a Grammy, but Paul Robeson, you got to remember, by the time the Grammys came around, his his career peak was over, and he was persona non grata. You know, Paul got caught up because of his civil rights activities. You got to remember, back in the 1930s and 40s, a lot of black people, the Communist Party, was recruiting black people. They said, you know, you're not treated well in this capitalist system. You need to join us. There's no proof that Paul actually became a communist. But the association led him to have to testify on Capitol Hill before Congress, you know, during the whole Eugene McCarthy, Red Scare, uh, where, you know, they were creating public blacklists of people who were thought to be communists. You know, he had gone to Russia, uh, met with several Russian leaders, and, and because he was looking for a way out of this negative racist system, well, Bill, according to, according to Wikipedia, according to Wikipedia, he also won the Stalin Peace Prize in 1953, uh, supporting the Soviet Union. So then, there's that. Yeah, that that didn't help with no. with back here in America. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, especially during that era, you know. But Paul Paul was he didn't back down. He stood up. He said, "I don't feel." And, and, and actually, if you could. I don't know if it's online, but his testimony before Congress, he let them know the reason I'm talking to these people is because I'm treated so bad here in America. You know, but he was one of the most popular singers of his era in the 30s. I would say the 30s, 40s was his high point, you know, in terms of being an actor and playing Othello, you know, but doing songs and the songs he did tended to be like work songs, like Joe Hill. I dream I saw Joe Hill last night as live as you and me. Uh, songs about every man, the every man, the, the white guy, the black guy who's on the bottom of society. That's what Paul's saying about, as well as spirituals and songs like that. Well, I've got uh, the he, transcript he was, here, Bill. Do you? Uh-huh. So... One of the lines, you know, it's, a, it's pretty long, two pages. Yeah. But one of the lines, the one that you were referring to, is he said, in Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being where I did not feel the pressure of color as I did feel it in this committee today. And it goes Isn't on. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, but, but you know, But you know how he suffered for saying that. He couldn't get work here. Just just like when Eartha Kitt went to the White House in the 60s and the Lyndon Johnson administration and got up at that tea party that Lady Bird had and talked about Vietnam. She couldn't work here for years. She had to go overseas. Paul had to go overseas to get real meaningful work. Wow. Interesting. Let, let me throw this in there. Since we're talking about the influence of black music on the civil rights movement, you know, I had a conversation with Andy Young about 
what they did when they were marching. And he says they all sang these songs. They sang the Curtis Mayfield songs, you know, We're a Winner, uh, Get On Up, all those Curtis Mayfield songs. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, it was Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions back then, uh, Bill. That's what the, the, that, they sang these songs uh, to motivate them. Motivate them. And, and this is when they were marching in the daytime. They were, and everybody, he says everybody knew the songs. And then at night, and that's when Dick Gregory took over <laughs> to keep them, it started the comedy session going. Right. But talk to us about some of those songs, those early Curtis Mayfield songs. They, they oh, were, my uh, gosh. The rights marchers were singing. Curtis Mayfield, who, and I saw an interview one time where Curtis Mayfield talked about the burden of his skin color. He, he was a dark or, or he, he he might call himself blue black. I mean, I think this is the term he used in one of the interviews. And the special oppression that comes from that, even within the black community. So he wrote these songs about things he was experiencing. This would be the late mid to late sixties when those songs "We're a Winner" uh, and in and, and the early 70s, when he did his solo records, he continued, you know, with old Superfly and, uh, uh, and, and those different songs. Uh, but they were playing Choice on the Choice of radio. Colors. Yeah, Choice of Colors. And But those songs were actually hits on the radio. They were big hits. So that's why they were popular. But before those songs, in the early civil rights movement in late 50s and 60s, people like Pete Seeger, uh, who's from a group called the Weavers, he introduced the song. He didn't write the song, but he introduced the song, We Shall Overcome. <clears throat> when they were marching in Selma and different places, he was the one that introduced that song. So then the movement adopted that song. Curtis Mayfield, the impression song, came a little bit later. That was the late 60s, but this was the early 60s. Those songs, but first of all, they met in churches because it's one of the few places they could meet without the eye of the law on them, especially in the South, where the where the, the overt racism was so ridiculous. And, and black people, if you were in a good car, you would be pulled over just for being, and where'd you get this car? You know, like Mahalia Jackson had to start asking for money and her payment when she'd do a concert out of town. She'd get paid in cash because people didn't believe the check really belonged to her. If she got a $5,000 check, well, how'd you get this? Who are you? So she started getting paid in cash. You know, so there's a whole bunch of different things black people had to deal with, but they learned how to work around it. Hold that thought right there. Uh, Howard is joining us. He's in L.A. at 12 minutes away from the top. Yeah. Howard, good morning. You're on with Bill Carpenter. Good morning. Thank you for your call. Um, uh, the songs, I think, I mean, were very influential. Hey, Howard, before you give it, give us a weather update. You, you guys have washed away out there in L.A.? Well, I'm in watch, man. I got to worry about my roof is sinking. You know, that's all I got okay. to worry about. Uh, that's all I got to say about that. You know, but uh, in, in the surrounding areas, in the deserts, I think you had a a flood down there in San Diego of all places. Downtown, I said, wow. But it's, it's, it's all over, kind of, and all depends where you live. I'm down here. You know you, have, you know where we stay in L.A., so I just have to worry about my roof. And, uh, all right. You know, that's the whole thing. Any question for Bill? Oh, well, I want to comment. The, the songs, I think, were very influential 
um, for us during that era was James Brown when he came out with Say A Lot, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And when I was stationed in the Air Force, the Lowry Air Force Base, if you want to start a riot, have a white boy pull the plug on that song, Instant Riot. Another song you made I liked was uh, Don't don't Give Me Nothing. What I, uh, I don't want nobody to give me nothing, but open the door and I get it myself. That was for affirmative action, you know, that type of thing. And, and, and MFSB, I think they made that song, Ain't No Stopping Us Now. Those were good songs for the movement. And uh, as far as you made a comment about how they make you like songs, when Aretha Franklin came out of respect, I couldn't stand it. But KGFJ, the station out here, played every other song. And after a while, I got to really listen to it, and I really like it now. But uh, those are songs I think were very influential on our on us. And as far as the rain goes, it's raining right now out here. So uh, we back to back storms, and we need the weather. And uh, if you know, if you've been out here before, uh, on the other side of the mountains is a desert, but where I'm in is a semi desert, so it's always warm and you know dry. Let's say. But anyway. Uh, thank you for your call, but that's to bring my memories. It's something, it's something else I can't think about. I was talking to my classmates about about the um, Grammys, and she pulled my coattail a long time ago. Says it's about the people, uh, a member of the Academy, they voting like that because it was some song I I can't think of what it was. I think they should have got a award for it. They didn't get no mention at all, you know. So, and another thing I like, I like the fact that BET and uh, do our own award shows. And I remember at one time, the white folks was commenting about why y'all got to do that. Hey, you guys won't give us no credit. You got to give us our own selves credit for what we do. And now right. their award shows are off the hook as far as performances go. But anyway, thank you for taking my call, Carl. All right, thanks, Howard. <laughs> you know, Bill, he mentioned respect. Can you talk about that? That influence in, in the uh, civil rights movement? Because, you know, when I think Otis Redding, I think he did it first. But Aretha put her spin on it. And from what I understand, was it was you know her contribution really to the civil rights movement. Am I correct in saying that, or was or I was misinformed? Well, it's, it's been taken to represent the civil rights movement. When Otis Redding did the song, first of all, it was a big hit for Otis Redding. It was a top five R and B hit for Otis Redding. It's actually one of his biggest radio hits. And uh, and he, he, somebody else did it before Otis did it. And they brought it to him as a ballad. Otis changed the tempo and changed some of the and changed the words around. And uh, but Aretha loved listening to the radio. A lot of people don't realize Aretha was a fan of music. She was a fan of artists. And if you look at that period of her career in the '60s, she recorded a lot of cover songs. She covered, you know, Dinah Washington and Dionne Warwick. Uh, yeah, Dionne Warwick and. Uh, you know, the great song books for Columbia Records. She did, like, all the old Ella Fitzgerald, all that kind of stuff. But she was singing Respect in her show because uh, she liked the song, the Otis song. And and then when she did her first record for Atlantic Records around 67, uh, she just decided to throw this in one of the sessions. And then she and her sisters, Carolyn and Irma, worked out the background arrangement, and they added the R-E-S-P-E-C-T part. That wasn't in the original. They put that in there. Then they added the socket to me, baby, because that was something that was people were saying in the neighborhood at the time. And now, years, years later, Ed Bradley from 
60 Minutes was interviewing Aretha, and he asked her, well, what do you mean? What, what is this song about? Is it about, he was intimating that it was about sexual liberation, you know, like male, female sexual liberation. She said, no, it had nothing to do with that. It was just, when you come home, treat me like, with respect, you know, like, you've been out all day working, I'm here at the house taking care of things. Treat me like, with respect. That's what it meant for her. Now, because of what the words are, the community has taken it to mean respect me as a woman, uh, respect me as a black person. Uh, and that's what great songs do. Great songs with great messages, people will take them for what the cause is and adopt them. And that's what it has become. It's become an anthem that she never intended for it to become. That wasn't the idea. It was just a song that she liked. It's a message that she liked. But it's become something more, and that's what great songs do. All right. Hold that thought right there, Bill. We've got to take another quick break. Another song we're going to talk about later, too, is Sam Cooke, A Change Is Gonna Come. We're, just, you know, we're talking about folks she's just waking up and joining us, discussing the influence of black music on the civil rights movement with music historian Bill Carpenter. Bill's got a book out called On Cloudy Days, The Gospel Music Encyclopedia, those of you who want to find out more about Bill. Anyway, we've got to take a break, as I mentioned, at six away from the top. Yeah, I'll be back in four minutes, though, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV, run FM 95.9. And AM fourteen fifty WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. Two minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, Bill Carpenter. Bill is a music historian. As you know, it's Black History Month, and we're discussing the influence of black music on the civil rights movement. So uh, Bob is reaching out to us before we move on and talk about the, the, uh, Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. <clears throat> Bob's on line three. He's calling from Buffalo. Bob, you have a question or a comment for Bill? Yes, sir. And for you, uh, thank you for reframing Black History Month into African heritage. Uh, I, I think that's really critical. Um, the, the technology, the recording arts and sciences have allowed us to reach back and to move forward. Uh, in terms of Curtis, two of the best ones that I remember are We're Winner and Keep On Pushing. I think both of those helped the movement. But two Curtis tunes that I've found recently, I think, move us forward. One is called Homeless and one is called Here But I'm Gone. If people haven't heard those, look them up. I think they're Time me for where we're at today. Homeless and here, but I'm gone. All right. Thanks, Bob. Billy, familiar with those? any of those songs? I'm not. I'm, I'm familiar with the earlier ones he mentioned, like uh, uh, Moving On Up and Keep On Pushing, but not the Homeless song. I have to check it out. Yeah, and we're a winner. We'll throw that one in there, too. That's one of the other songs they sang. I want to talk about, before we talk about Sam Cooke, though, Harry Belafonte, his influence uh, because Harry was tight with, with Dr. King. Well, one of the things he talked about at his concerts, Bill, he says were mostly white folks at his concerts. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he never got the support from the, from the black community because yeah. he, he says he wasn't Southern and it's, his, his style of music was different. Can you talk about that? Sure, sure. Uh, well, Harry Belafonte, much like B.B. King, you know, 
the last 50 years of B.B. King's life, his audience was mostly white. Same thing with Harry Belafonte. A lot of a lot of people felt his Caribbean music, even though he was born here in the USA, he was celebrating his Caribbean roots in his music. And a lot of people, like he never really had, other than, the, you know, the Banana Boat song, he really never had a big R&B radio hit. But he had several gold records. He had TV specials. You know, so the white audience, uh, or, or the mainstream audience, if you want to call it that, appreciated that music. You know, at, at, you know, in spite of racism, the white community has always been interested or fascinated or intrigued by various types of black music, whether it's blues or Caribbean or, you know, like uh, ska or reggae and there's always been curiosity that a lot of black people are very, and I'm saying all, but just some of the black community is very close-minded. Even now, when you talk to like a lot of young black kids, they're very narrow in what they listen to, which is interesting based on what we were talking about earlier, about how a lot of hip-hop producers and performers listen to everything, but their actual audience is very narrow. The black part of their audience is very narrow in terms of what they listen. Now, the other story is, you know, most of the people listening to hip hop today are not black anyway. You know, it's being supported by white kids. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, Ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Yeah, you know, I want to, and we talk about uh, Bob Marley, which actually, actually today's his birthday. So someone, someone just tweeted and told me. But back to to uh, Harry Belafonte, I and mean, we talked about We Are the World. He was the catalyst behind We Are the World. But when what happened because of his, he leveraged his friendship with with white actors like Marlon Brando, Tony Bennett, or Paul Newman. He got money from them. And he bailed out the civil rights workers. You know, there were times there's a story I read about what he did. He got the money and, you know, in cash. Because, of course, you had to have the cash. So he was sort of the bag man. And Dr. King called him and, and said, you know, there, were, there was a whole bunch of folks in, in jail in Montgomery, Alabama. And he <laughs> and uh, uh, Sidney Poitier went down there and, 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 yeah. and helped him out. So that, that part of the, the black music part that, that doesn't jive because he he did he felt a way the black people didn't appreciate his music but they they liked him for what he did right for example um and paul robeson was a mentor to harry belafonte uh because paul was very political and he sort of told and 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 actually harry's 
thoughts and feelings were not that different from Paul. But Paul told him, you have to do it differently for me. You you focus on your music, and that way you won't be penalized like I've been penalized. And that's what he did. And that allowed him to have that large audience. And like you mentioned, you know, he brought those people like Marlon Brando and Paul Newman to the March on Washington in 1963. Because the speech, the Dr. King speech is what most people remember. But they, they don't real remember that, you know, Judy Garland gave money. Bayer Rustin got Judy Garland to give money to the march. They were getting all of Hollywood to bankroll this march because it costs money. And, uh, you know, but Harry Belafonte is clearly, truly, you know, he was in all kinds of rooms that I think a lot of people didn't realize he was in at the time. I know there was a meeting up in New York. Bobby Kennedy, who was the, who was John Kennedy's brother, President Kennedy's brother, and he was attorney, attorney general, had a meeting up in New York with Lorraine Hansberry and uh, Harry Belafonte to talk about, you know, what what we can do for civil rights, you know, and it, Harry Belafonte came out of that meeting not happy. I think James Baldwin might have been in that meeting too, and uh, because he was pressing, he was pressing the administration to move a little quicker than they were ready to go, and uh, so he's been very influential. You know, even up until he passed last year, he was still speaking out on issues. I got to ask you this question, though. How did he manage to have his entertainment cred still intact, even though he was a civil rights activist? How did he manage to straddle those? Because, you know, you, you mentioned Paul Robeson, what they did to him when he spoke out and they ostracized him. But it didn't happen to Harry Belafonte. Dick Gregory could probably throw in that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think part of it was, I think Harry, he never became associated with communists. That that was Paul's real downfall, is allowing the company he kept to to override or to eclipse him as an artist. Harry was careful about who he aligned with publicly. It was all right to align with Martin Luther King. Uh, it was even cool to align with Mark, uh, with Malcolm X. It just depended on how you did it. Uh, and a lot of people forget now that there were a lot of black people who didn't like Martin Luther King nor Malcolm X. You know, they thought they were both too radical. You know, the and, and then the, here come the Black Panthers who said, none of this is enough. We need much more than any of you all talking about. So it's I don't know. It's, I think it's probably partly because of how he looked. This is something people don't talk about. You know, Harry had a look that was pleasing to white America versus maybe somebody who was darker with more Afrocentric features. Uh, it's probably a whole lot of things that went into that subconsciously that they didn't uh, railroad him in the same way that they did Paul Robeson, who who was much more stereotypic black person, you know, large nose, big guy, 
you know, former football player, um, threatening in a different kind of way than a slim, matinee-looking person like Harry Belafonte, who had been, a, you know, sort of a sex symbol. Yeah. I mean, we see I, that even now when 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 artists are overweight or something, they're treated in a different way than someone who's slim. So true. Eleven after the top of the hour, and a tweet I mentioned uh, you mentioned today's uh, Bob Marley's birthday. I spoke to his publicist once because they, they would play la uh, large crowds in, in Scandinavian countries, and he would tell me you'd look out in, and see a sea of white, not one black yeah. face. Explain to me how. They accepted his music. Well, on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, you know, cause, and the tweeter says, Bob did a song, says, play I and the R&B. I want all my people to see. He wanted to get into the R&B, break into the R&B market. Yeah. Ex explain what happened, why it took so long for us to embrace Bob Marley's music. I, I wish I knew the answer to that because I've known about Bob Marley since I was probably nine years old. And my father had one of his records. I shot the sheriff. And that was my first introduction. And I just grew up loving his music. But that was something with Bob. He loved American R&B music. And in fact, it's the early days of Bob Marley and the Whalers, they did a lot of, they were a cover band almost, doing all these American songs. <laughs> you know, but then... He started to do his own songs, which were very political songs. You know, his songs were political and spiritual. It's, it's, it's a combination. And uh, when he took off in America, it was through rock radio, underground rock radio in the 70s. He was touring with rock bands, opening for rock bands. It, it bothered him that he couldn't get a foothold in the R&B world, because he, he loved those artists. I think the only song during his lifetime that was sort of an R&B hit was Waiting in Vain. Uh, and maybe Jamming. I used to, here in D.C. where I am, WKYS, I believe they used to play Jamming. I remember hearing that as a kid. Uh, but those are like the only two songs. I mean, even I Shot the Sheriff, it wasn't a hit by him here. It was a hit by Eric Clapton here. You know, so other people were recording his songs and making them popular. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people didn't realize till after he died that he was the originator. And, and there was a caller a little while ago, might have been the one in California. Uh, I was thinking about Bob Marley when he was talking about, I, he's just worried about the rain where he is. But it made me think of a Bob Marley lyric where he said, it don't rain when it rain, it don't just rain on one man's rooftop. You know, I was thinking about that when he was talking about the rain in California. But it wasn't until Bob Marley died and black people were hearing about how he was the main export from Jamaica. Without Bob Marley's music, that island would be in a lot worse problem or shape because there was political unrest. They didn't have a strong industry. He was bringing money to that island. Artists were going there to record music and putting money into that economy. 
Right. And, and hold that thought right there, Bill. We gotta take a quick break here. And real quickly, one of the things you're talking about rain, Bob Marley's said some when it rains, some people just feel the rain, just feel the water, others just get wet. Now think about that while we take this quick break here. We'll be back in four minutes though, right here with Bill Carmeter. We're talking about the influence of black music on the civil rights movement right here in Baltimore on ten ten WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM ninety five point nine and AM fourteen fifty WOL where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 22 minutes after the top of the hour with Bill Carpenter. Bill is a music historian, and his, his book, by the way, is called On Cloudy Days, the Gospel Music Encyclopedia. We're discussing this morning the influence of black music on the civil rights movement. And, Bill, i got a tweet question for you. Twitter says, uh, Bill, do you think if R&B black producers started pushing Marley's music, the white people would have realized that it was for the civil rights movement and stopped promoting his music? No, I don't think so. I, I think... I think any white person who listens to Bob Marley is pro-civil rights. (laughs) I don't think it's a MAGA crowd that's listening to Bob Marley. It's impossible. You listen to songs like Buffalo Soldier or Get Up, Stand Up. uh, There's no, I mean, it's, I just can't imagine anyone who doesn't feel that way. feel in line with those beliefs to play or listen to those songs. Yeah. Uh, Let me ask you about this particular song, though. This became an anthem, too, for the civil rights movement. A Change Is Gonna Come. Yeah. Dan Cook. That, you got to remember the context to when that song came about. It was December 1963 when Sam said it came to him in a dream, but it was a few months after the March on Washington, which had a profound impact on Sam Cooke. It was a few months after Sam Cooke heard Bob Dylan blowing in the rain, blowing in the wind. And, you know, Sam Cooke was a songwriter and he really wanted, he, he became famous for light, Fluffy songs, You Send Me and Another Saturday Night and I Ain't Got Nobody. I got some money, but I just got paid. He wanted to do something more meaningful, something that he felt was serious, like blowing in the the wind. He's like, how come I couldn't have written that? And he had experienced, he and his group, one of the hottest groups in the country, the hottest band in the country. He's one of the hottest acts in the country. But they go south, and they get turned away at hotels. He's got money to pay for the best hotel in town, but he can't stay there. So these are the the words in the song are from his personal experiences. And, and, and he, he worked out this song, and he liked it. But he, he never intended for it to become a radio single. He just he just wanted to, for himself, I think this is a song he did for himself, to prove that he could write something as good as Blowing in the, in the Wind. And he did it. Now, the guy, his, his, his manager, Alan Klein, who would you know, go on to be with the, the Rolling Stones and everything, he loved the song. And he got him to do it on The Tonight Show. Uh, but Sam thought it was too deep. It was 
too deep for that kind of thing. So he stopped singing it. Well, after Sam was killed in December of 64, RCA rushed out a single of Shake, and the B-side was the change is going to come. And that is, because I think if Sam had lived, he would have probably never signed off on that being a single because he didn't want to sing it live anymore. It was too personal for him. And and he and he didn't want to lose his white audience, and he, he knew it was a provocative song. Uh, but it, it just developed a life of its own. I would go as far as to say it's probably the song he's most known for now because it's been, it was in Malcolm X. You know, it's been in so many, I don't know about movies, but it's it's, it's in so many parts of our society. And uh, I've heard it, I've even heard it in a commercial one time. You know, it's, it's, you just think about, I was born by the river in a little shack and just like that river I've been running ever since. You know, it, it's been a long time coming, but I know change is going to come. And, you know, you hear stories about, Black people going to the movies and having to sit in the balcony. You know, this song talks about that, you know. And and I remember Tina Turner did a live version of her, her, one of her Live in Europe records. But she told this story when she was going through hell with, with Ike Turner at the beginning of her career. At the end, she met Sam at a hotel, and she didn't think, he had any idea who she was, but she knew who he was, and she was a fan. And that that's she she's actually recorded a handful of Sam Cooke songs. That I think that was her favorite R and B singers was Sam Cooke. But uh, that's the song she could re- you know it resonated for her too because she had experienced that same kind of prejudice, you know, of not being able to stay in hotels and and and. You know, she she grew up in deep Jim Crow down there in Nutbush, Tennessee. You know, he was in Chicago. You know, it was only when he went south that he experienced that kind of ridiculousness. But it, I think even it's sad that the song is so poignant even now because this stuff is still happening. It's, it's like it's happening over again in a new way. Yeah, and we're waiting on that change to come. That's what, you know, it's a Sam Cooke. But people don't understand how huge of an artist he was. I I know in my home, uh, my mother loved Sam Cooke. uh, We had that album uh, with all his greatest hits. Uh, I think it's got the yellow background on there. Yeah, later on I found that all the sisters loved uh, Sam Cooke. He was huge. He was like the Michael Jackson of his time. In fact, there's a there used to be a joke among Aretha Franklin's friends who were singers that you weren't supposed to record any Sam Cooke songs. Only she could do that. You know, Mavis Staples told me that one time, you know, that Aretha was bothered because Mavis did a version of You Send Me on one of her solo records, and Aretha had a problem with that. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> they all this is where this... Yeah, it was, since since we were the staple singers, their their contribution too. Oh my gosh! Now they, the staple singers, literally marched with Martin Luther King, and he would he would call. Well, let me go back to this. When 
after the, the Central High incident in 1957, Pop Staples was looking at that on TV. And he said, we're going we're gonna to write a song about this. Because they had been around, they had, been get, they had begun seeing Martin Luther King speak, and they said, Pop said, if he can preach it, we can sing it. So, so when they saw how they treated those kids who were trying to get an education in Little Rock, they wrote, why am I treated so bad? And then Dr. King started having them sing that song at, at just meetings, not even marches that the public was at, just at their organizing meetings to decide what they were going to do. And then they just be the staple singers just recorded so many songs. Uh, Walk into D.C. and uh, What It's Worth. Songs asking questions about how we're treating each other as human beings. Uh, And then, of course, you know, probably their most famous song, I'll Take You There. I know a place where nobody's crying, nobody's sad. You know, nobody puts you out. In other words, being put out of places that you're not supposed to be in because you're black. You know, that song, in a clever, non-threatening way, talks about all of that in a way that, now, people who listen to that song might not realize the, the, the civil rights backdrop to that song, but it's all over it. And like, the only place we're going to get full freedom is heaven. <laughs> and that's sort of what the song is talking about. Wow. 29 away from the top. I got another tweet for you. Uh, the tweeter says, uh, is, says uh, Bill, wasn't Nina Simone instrumental in the movement? And Oh, my gosh. And she dropped everything to join Dr. King in the South. I want to talk about Nina Simone. Oh, my gosh. I, Nina Simone is another person who didn't really, I think, understand why she was not more embraced by her people. Here's a woman who started her career sort of, I don't know, on the the tail end of like Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan. Her early records were, were jazz, pop. By the late 60s, she had a bench. She stopped straightening her hair. She's wearing an afro. She's wearing a turban. She was singing to be young, gifted, and black, which she wrote about her friend, Lorraine Hansberry, who wrote uh, A Raisin in the Sun and died prematurely for the age of 40, cancer. Uh, you know, she, you know, Nina Simone wrote Mississippi Goddamn about just the horrific activities happening in Mississippi. Uh, so many songs. She even has a song later in her career called Baltimore, which talks about the horrors of growing up poor in black in Baltimore. Beautiful song. Now you can listen to that song and get lost in the strings and the beauty of it and not realize what she's singing about. But when you pay attention to those words, oh my gosh, it's crazy. But you know, Nina Simone was a non repentant person when it came to civil rights and she let everybody know I'm not happy with the way things are and that never ended you know much like Miles Davis she had sort of a love-hate relationship with her audience 
um, where she would say things uh, in her concerts that might piss off some of the people in her audience because her audience was the intelligentsia. She was singing. She wasn't making pop songs. She was making thinking songs. I don't think she ever recorded anything that was stupid. You know, it was always something to make you think. Even if it was a song like, I want some sugar in my bowl, you know, what is what is this bowl <laughs> of which you speak? <laughs> you know, it, it's always something. So Nina Simone was truly a, a, a trailblazer. She raised a lot of money for the movement, as did Aretha Franklin, as did the Staples Singers. You know, Staples Singers raised money for Martin Luther King. They raised money for Operation Breadbasket that Jesse, Reverend Jesse Jackson had. Um so many of these artists, Mahalia Jackson raised hundreds of thousands of dollars over her career for various uh, civil rights organizations, you know. And she's not somebody who gave, was known for being uh, generous with giving money away, but she raised money for this cause. Yeah. Hold that thought right there, Bill. We've got to take a quick break and we come back. It's raising money because Motown also gave them some money as well. And some issues with the recordings of Dr. King. And we'll talk about that when we get back. And also Strange Fruit. We kind of talk about that record. Can't talk about, uh, you know, the influence of black music on the civil rights movement without talking about Strange Fruit. So when we talk about that when we get back. Family, you want to join the conversation? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL where information is power. And good morning once again, family, and 19 minutes away from the top of the hour with Bill Carpenter. Bill is a music historian, as you probably guessed for listening to the program so far, because we've been talking about the influence of black music on the civil rights movement. Before we go back to Bill, I just want to remind you, coming up uh, later this morning, we're going to speak with black politics expert Dr. James Taylor. And later this week, you're going to hear from Dick Gregory's youngest son, Johansi, about growing up as a Gregory and also uh, Greg's fight for the civil rights as well. Also, civil rights uh, activist Willie Wicks, Willie Mukasa Ricks, who marched with Dr. King and uh, Kwame Ture, uh, t- and uh, you know, created, helped create SNCC with, with John Lewis and, and Mayor for Life, Marion Barry. He's going to be with us. So make sure that your radio is locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're in are on 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, uh, Bill, we talked about Detroit and Sly's. We got a caller from Detroit. Sly's on line two. Sly, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. How's it going? Good. Hello. Oh. Yes. Can yeah. you can you guys hear? Yeah, me? we can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I just had a, a couple songs I wanted to uh, contribute that, that were uh, great for our movement, and I'll end it with a bit of uh, music history how our how our music has shaped the music industry. Uh, number number one, we gotta we can't leave out the Shylights with songs like There Will Never Be Any Peace Until God is Seated at the Conference Table, and for God's sake, give more power to the people. And then Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album, the entire album was relevant to our movement. Okay, and then I'll end it with Timmy Thomas, Why Can't We Live Together? And Mm -hmm. 
Black Fat. That song that came out of 73, Why Can't We Live Together? That was the first recording to use a drum machine. Mm. I didn't know that. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yes, I'm a a former uh, DJ here in Detroit. Really? Did you know Timmy Thomas? Not personally, but uh, uh, I know that record. That was a big song here in Detroit. That was on the Glades record label. Which yeah, is of course I, know, I think he passed last year, I think. Oh wow, I, that I didn't know. I've been yeah. I've been out of the circle quite some time. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Lai. Thanks for sharing those those Have songs with us. All righty. Uh, Bill, you want to comment on any of the <clears throat> the records that he mentioned? No, they're all great records. Uh I'm familiar with the Timmy Thomas. I'm familiar with uh For God's sake, give more power to the people. That was definitely uh, a powerful song just along the lines of like the Isley Brothers. Uh, uh, they had a song, um, oh gosh, it just went out of my head. But, uh, uh, oh, Fight the Power. That's that's what I was trying to think, Fight the Power. You know, that's one of them. Uh, the Isley Brothers had a few pretty um, uh, songs that were very uh, quasi-militant, but uh, in a good way, I would say. But yeah, those are good tracks. Yeah, and someone just tweeted that Timmy Thomas uh, uh, transitioned back in March 11th of 2022. Uh, we talked about Detroit because Sly's going up from Detroit, and and Dr. King when he went to Detroit, this is a corner of Reverend Jesse Jackson, and told Bill uh, Barry Gordy that uh, <laughs> they need some money for the payroll, you know, because they, they mm-hmm. had an entourage, stay at hotels the whole night, and Barry wrote <laughs> yeah. the check. But at that meeting, that's when he decided to press some of Dr. King's speeches. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. That, that's when, um, now what I know about is that Dr. King, well, let's go back a little bit. Um, there were all these church bombings in the South. They figured the place that you could get the most black people and make a statement was the church, because that's, that was the meeting place for recreation as well as spirituality. So they were, the clue. Ku Klux Klan was bombing all these churches throughout the South. So uh, Dr. King went South to, uh, there was this event happening to to help this church rebuild after it had been burned. And he was on the bill with a woman named Presia Hall, who he knew when he was in Philadelphia 
in ministry school, and she had become a powerful speaker. And she was, she did this prayer-like thing. She's talking about, I, I, I have a dream, I have a dream, I have a dream. And it, it was a refrain that she kept saying in this prayer. And then on their way back to the airport, they were driving together. And he said, I, I sort of like that thing you were talking about with the dream. I'd like to use that. Would you mind? And she said, oh, yeah, please, go ahead. So he had began using this dream sequence. And he, Detroit was one of the first places he tried it out. And Mahalia Jackson was at that. And so she heard that. So when he was at the March on Washington in 63, and it seemed like he was about to wrap up his, his speech, and Mahalia called out, tell him about the dream, Martin. And he just went into that post. It's like that's not even part of what he was planning to talk about that day because the issue was justice, you know, jobs, justice, and freedom. You know, so he went there. And, and, and that, that's the part everybody remembers. From that speech is, is that whole I have a dream sequence. And, and Mahalia, he, he later gave credit to her for, rem, you know, reminding him about that, you know. But, yeah, Motown, Barry Gordy, you know, Barry Gordy is interesting because, like, when the caller mentioned Marvin Gaye's What's Going On record, Barry Gordy didn't want that record to come out because Barry Gordy, had built Motown off of a integrated audience. They created fun-loving, upbeat songs that black and white people could enjoy. The sound of young America. He didn't want to bring that down with songs like What's Going On, Trouble Man, Inner City Blues. Nobody wants to hear about how bad life is. But uh, it turned out he was wrong. People, people didn't mind hearing about it because those were some of Marvin Gaye's biggest songs. But he was a quiet supporter of civil rights. He just didn't want to become the front man for that. Um, he didn't want anything to hurt the commercial success of the Motown sound. But he would slip the money to to keep it going because, in the long run, it was good for everybody. Yeah, and, and it's early records. They told me there were no pictures of the artists. You mentioned it was on the sound of Young America, but there was there was no pictures. It was just you know Temptations' greatest hits or Four Tops' greatest hits and and that kind of stuff. And because I remember some of those albums, I had some of those albums myself, and it just dawned on me because the attempt was to get that crossover audience. Was that Absolutely. what is, was that what Absolutely. was behind Barry's thinking? Well, that, it wasn't just a Barry thing. See, Barry was a student of everybody who came before him, the VJ records, the uh, Chess records. He, fought, he paid attention to everybody. You know, a lot of those early B.B. King records, his picture wasn't on there either. You know, they knew, even though white people would hear these songs and know it wasn't a black person, it's a subconscious thing. They don't, they don't want this in their house this black face, unless Nat King Cole seemed to have gotten a pass. <laughs> you know, Nat King Cole, it was all right, because he was non-threatening. Mona Lisa and Route 66, you know, he was all right. But, you know, everybody else was, uh, we don't know. 
So it wasn't really till the late 60s that you really began to see in mass uh, black faces showing up on album covers. There was, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, people like that, okay. But by and large, if you're trying to sell to young America at that time, you didn't really put a lot of black faces on records. And if you were an R&B label, you really sold more 45s than LPs. It was really not until D.B. Wonder, Marvin Gaye, that black people really started selling LPs. The blacks who really sold LPs before that appealed to mainstream audiences, the Johnny Masses, the Nancy Wilson. Those people had a more mainstream sound, so full records. The, the younger black audience is just buying the 45. You can throw in Isaac Hayes' uh, album and say Hot Buttered Soul. Remember that one? Hot Buttered Soul, which introduced the, the long, you know, because back then most songs were like two, two and a half minutes. And then here Isaac Hayes comes doing like a seven or eight minute version of By the Time I Get to Phoenix. <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, Never Can Say Goodbye or, you know, he, you know, and he, had, that's sort of the, the rap, that was sort of the first rap music, he, the smooth rap of, you know, Isaac Hayes, Black Moses. He he created that long-form record format. Yeah. Hold on a second. We got some more folks who want to talk to you. Uh, let's go to line two first. Brother Man 2 is calling from New York City. Brother Man 2, good morning. You're on with Bill Carpenter. Yes, I uh, agree. So, Ted, uh, you know, just enjoy the conversation and um, just wanted to uh, get your feedback on how the uh, artists uh, internationalize the civil rights struggle, uh, taking it um, not just from uh, national consciousness, but promoting it. Because um, when you find that a lot of the uh, older continental Africans and their children, were very familiar with James Brown. Um, then later on, many of the revolutionary fighters against apartheid um, were familiar with Peter Tosh and Bob Marley. And uh, even uh, the movie that's coming out with Bob Marley, One Love, I don't know if the family is aware, but Curtis Mayfield has uh, credits, writing credits on that, because Curtis Mayfield was very respected by the uh, conscious artists um, in the Caribbean. And uh, they they would listen to him um, constantly um, because of the uh, way that the colonial thing was set up. They would get their radios or they would go come to America. I think you mentioned that Bob Marley, uh, I don't know if you did, but Bob Marley lived in Delaware for a moment. And mm-hmm. anyone who made the trip, they would bring back the uh, American African-American records uh, to play because yeah. they have commodities that they really, really love Curtis Mayfield. So when you see the title One Love, it's um, it's a combination of the writing credits. It's One Love and uh, People Get Ready by Curtis Mayfield because they really respected him. In regards, to the, uh, um, in regards to the how Bob Marley got marketed, um, you know, Chris Blackwell, who Peter Tosh called uh, Black Worst, um, promoted him along the college and rock and roll scene. And uh, that was the line of thinking. Um, but it was uh, Frankie Crocker, maybe rest in power, who played um, 
Bob Marley's song on the radio on um, BLS, Black Home Station, in New York. And uh, that's when he started breaking through because what happens, as you know, uh, you can have a movement, but if it doesn't register on the uh, on the sales uh, scanning and the uh, certain radio stations, it does you don't get credit for it being a hit. And uh, you know, the, there were a lot of people, especially musicians, who were into Bob Marley, but it wasn't translating to the you know population right. that uh, that made the radios. And if you could comment on Billy Paul. Because uh, everybody knows him for his song on uh, Me and Mrs. Jones, but few people know about his conscious song. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, where he, quotes, Black. Where he yeah, where he samples uh, Malcolm X, Martin right. King. I meant to have a cut it there because we come up on a break, and I'll let Bill respond on the other side. Thank you for the, bringing that up for us, though. Five away from the top, as I mentioned, we've got to step aside, take a quick break. We're back in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. Momentarily, we're speaking with Dr. James Taylor. Right now, we're with music historian Bill Carpenter discussing the influence of black music on the civil rights movement. Before we left, we had a call from New York City. Brother Mantu was speaking with us. So I know, Bill, you want to respond to some of the things that uh, Brother yeah. Mantu mentioned. Yeah, yeah. He was talking about Billy Paul. And uh, actually, the first Billy, first of all, I had the great opportunity to um, I was working with Candy State, and, and she was on tour with Billy Paul in England in maybe 2006, seven somewhere in there. And I got to hang out with Billy and his widow, Blanche, and he is just one of the nicest people you ever want to meet. But to his, he mentioned, uh, the caller mentioned, Let Them Men is the song he was referring to, that sample, Malcolm X. Uh, even had <laughs> that you even had speech, uh, but Billy had a lot of songs uh, like "Brown Baby," "Am I Black Enough for You," where he said, "We're gonna move on up one by one. We ain't gonna stop until the work is done." Uh, you know, Billy was very much about civil rights, but so was Gamble and Huff. You know, uh, another caller had mentioned. Uh, McFadden and Whiteheads, we ain't, ain't no stopping us now. You know, Philadelphia International Records was the home of, in my opinion, the sophisticated side of the soul and and civil rights movement. I mean, they they were telling these really strong stories and sending these strong messages through very sophisticated orchestras and strings. You know, you think about the OJs with backstabbers and uh, it, just so many great songs came out of uh, Kenny Gamble and, and Leon Huff and, and, and that whole Philadelphia International crew, uh, including Billy Paul. So uh, thanks for bringing up Billy Paul, who's somebody who's known for Me and Mrs. Jones, which is an excellent, great song, but he was so much more than just that. All right. Four after the top. Yeah, Mama Tradition is calling from L.A. She's on line two. Mama Tradition, you're on with uh, Bill Carpenter. Uh, yes. Can you hear me, Carl? Sure. 
Okay. Um, yes, my question would be the song that Bob Marley sings since today is his birthday, and I did have the opportunity of meeting him back in the 70s when I went to Jamaica and when he came on the survival tour. Well, he had this one particular song called Talking Blues, and it was, uh, uh, like, about homeless, and he said he was sleeping on the cold concrete. The lyrics would say something like that, and then another one where he says, I feel like bumming the church because I know that the preacher is lying. It's like most of his songs were for revolution and for the cause of the people. And yeah. most of those songs would have been the songs that caused black people to start finally listening because when I first started to go to Bob Marley shows, there was not more than 25 of us in the whole arena most of the time. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20-milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. That's a, a bill. I, you I want to comment with, on that? Yeah, that, I mean, she's right. I, I, I think it never happened for Bob. He never had a black audience in America. It, it would only be like she mentioned, twenty, twenty-five people. Um, you know, and even though Frankie Crocker, uh, another caller mentioned Frankie Crocker on WBLF playing, Frankie was trying to get jamming going, and it, it just never went. Uh, you know, Frankie had a very inventive show. I mean, he he was he would break records in New York, but that didn't help in Tucson, Arizona, or or Los Angeles or Dallas, Texas. But um, it, again, it's it's unfortunate that more black people didn't get to enjoy Bob Marley in person. Um, I was too young when he was still performing too, but yeah. Um, Bill, also, um, uh, the song Zimbabwe, Mash It Up in Zimbabwe, Bob Marley was very instrumental in the independence of Zimbabwe because I I happened to be present when uh, the daughters came and chartered a plane for Bob and the whole band to go to Zimbabwe, and they played a big arena there, and they said it was thousands. This is all black people. This is when Mm -hmm. it finally took off. That was like uh, late 79, 1980 right before yeah, he passed, yeah. and he went to Zimbabwe, yeah. and they got their independence. So it's a lot of uh, correlation to the music. If you really studied and if you were there oh, and yeah. you were present, you can document and tell the story. Good thing. For your right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he was, he was very well loved in the former colonial, in British colonial areas of Africa and England. He was popular. He wasn't popular in black America which is what he really wanted because another caller had mentioned, uh, I think, or maybe it was Carl, about the impressions and Curtis Mayfield, the influence that uh, 
those those that that group has on Bob Marley and like one love people get ready. That's what Bob Marley yearned for was acceptance by black America because he loved black R and B music. He never experienced that in America, but he did experience it in Africa and Europe among black people there. Yeah, that, that was uh, Brother M2 from New York. That was, I'll give him the credit. But here's what I want to mention, though, and we talked about this uh, some time ago. Mar- what Bob Marley did, he gave writing credits to one of his songs, I think it's No Woman, No Cry, to a homeless shelter. So that whenever that check comes in, part of the mo- that money goes to that shelter. So poor people, I think it's, uh, it must be in Jamaica, they can now eat. They could, and it's being funded in perpetu- uh, you know, forever now because of, of what Bob Marley did giving them the writing credits, giving the guy who runs the homeless camp the writing credits so that he can feed the homeless. That's something I haven't heard any of these artists have ever written, because, you know, they, many of them, they, they, they cleave to their writing credits, so that's the, where the money's at. That doesn't surprise me, because, like, if you read um, Timothy White's book, Catch a Fire, about Bob Marley's life, Bob Marley didn't personally care about money. He only cared about money and as far as it can help other people. Uh, the fights didn't break out until after he died, with, with, you know, because he had several children and a widow who was not the mother of some of these children. And, and, and then you had members of the Whalers, of his backing band, who were fighting with Island Records and Chris Blackwell over royalties and things. None of this would have happened while Bob was alive because he was he was like that stabilizing peace force. He would just get to you. I mean, that's that's my I don't know, that's my vision of him. If you wanted something, he would just give it to you. So I'm not surprised that he left you know, that he earmarked that money to go to that shelter. That that's very much like him. Right, and his movie's coming out pretty soon. You know, we didn't get a chance to talk about Strange Fruit because when we were talking about, you know, the influence of black music on the civil rights movement, quickly, can you tell us about Strange Fruit? Did When, when that record came out, did people know that that's what it meant? What was behind it? I think, well, first of all, it came out in an era where Ida B. Wells and Walter, Walter White of the NAACP we're trying to get Congress to pass anti-lynching laws. Lynching was a big deal in that time period uh, from the end of uh, slavery right through Franklin Roosevelt's administration. They were still trying to get a lynching law passed. It was that serious. And that's what that song is about. It was written by a Russian schoolteacher uh, in New York. One of his students would end up being James Baldwin. He was a radical. He was a radical school teacher from Russia who, uh, his name was Abel Mirapol, who was just aghast that in this country that preaches this freedom, that, you know, they could be allowing lynching to take place. Like, you know, the, the opening verses, southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swing swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. So they introduced this song to Billie Holiday. She started singing it in New York. And they would they would 
Turn the Lights Down. It would be her closing song because they didn't feel like she could sing anything else after this. Nothing else would make sense after singing this because it's such a potent song. They turn the lights down. She closed her eyes, almost like she's praying. And oftentimes she sings the song a cappella. And, and tears would just be coming out of people's eyes as they heard this song. It became, and, and, and Billy was like Nina Simone back in the 30s. You know, she was non-repentant. She didn't care. She called spades spades, and and so she wasn't afraid of the song. People around her were afraid of it. You know, her record label, Columbia, was afraid to send the song down south. <laughs> you know, they, there were actually some records that came out that they they left this out, left this off the final record, because they didn't think the record store in the south would put it in their shop. But it, it's, it's, it's wild that after her death, this became her most famous song. But, you know, during her lifetime, it was, you know, fine and mellow and songs like that that she was known for. Wow. Bill, thank you. Thank you. A lot of information to share with us this morning. Uh, are you on social media? How can folks reach you? I'm on, I'm on uh, Instagram. I think it's uh, Music Grio, G-R-I-O-T. I'm on X, Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Bill Carpenter, uh, I think it was one L or maybe two L's. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a whole story. <laughs> but anyway. And your book, by the way, it, the title of your book again? Oh, it's Uncloudy Day, but it's out of print. I don't really recommend people buy that. It's, it's not that many copies floating around. I'm working on an update. I do want to mention that Next week, PBS is airing a special called Gospel by Henry Louis Gates that talks about some of the stuff we talked about today. I previewed right. I, I went to a screening of it uh, a week ago. It's excellent, excellent. Everybody should tune in on February 11th, no, 12th and 13th on PBS for that. Okay. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for helping us uh, discuss the influence of black music on the civil rights movement. It's been interesting to talk about a lot of music and a lot of artists as well. Always great talking to you and your audience. All right. That's Bill Carpenter. Uh, Dr. Taylor, thanks for being so patient. We're coming up with Dr. Taylor next, 14 after the time. I'll be back in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour. We're joined now by Dr. James Taylor from the University of San Francisco. Dr. Taylor, thank you, and thank you for being so patient with us. Before we start, though, give us a weather report, because the stories we're seeing on the news here is that California is about to go into the Pacific Ocean. How, how are you doing out there in San Francisco? Is Dr. Taylor there on line uh, six? Call. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm here. Okay, go ahead. Uh, no, I was saying happy Black History Month. and. Um, uh, the weather is way worse in L.A. than it is up here in the Bay Area. We just got a lot of rain and you know wind blowing down branches, but I haven't seen anything you know as harsh as what I've seen down in L.A. in terms of flash floods. So it's you know this is the winter time and it, it does this every year from about October to about January, uh, actually no, about March, 
And so uh, it's not, it doesn't snow here, but it's your rains. All right. Uh, well, let's get started then. First, before we talk about the black vote, reparations. What's the latest with reparations? Because we, we saw one report that, uh, a report that California moved the uh, stages about rep- for reparations. Then another report came out a few a few days later. So it was all in disrepair. It was, wasn't so. It was wrong. So what do you know? Yeah, I think there's a lot of propaganda to try to mislead people um, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, you know, the right wing uh, media outlets were you know, trying to confuse uh, things claiming that Gavin Newsom came out against reparations and Gavin Newsom had to come out and say he did not come out against reparations. Um, there's the, the city at San Francisco. Again, there's one in Los Angeles. There's one in Sacramento. There's reparations in Berkeley. There's reparations in Oakland. All of those cities have their own reparations uh, recommendations committees. The state of New York just joined the state of California as the second state in America to at the state level. Uh, engage in a reparations um, review. Um, uh, you know, it's other places like Evanston, Illinois, uh, Asheville, North Carolina, um, uh, Chicago. And so, you know, it's hard to say what, where things are because there are so many different reparations plans and proposals going on. We might be making a mistake by going to the state itself as an approach, but we tried earlier under Charles Ogletree and Johnny Cochran before both of them died um, to uh, do a legal approach uh, through, through lawsuits, through the courts. Um, but the courts had ruled back in the 1890s uh, that the state was immune for what it did to us uh, in terms of slavery, um, I think in a case called McAdoo. And that case uh, resolved the reparations harm uh, that was done. So what we're doing, you know, is really like Martin Luther King, you know, unfortunately relying on moral suasion uh, hoping that people will do the right thing, which we know, you know, not, you know, people w- will not do the right thing. But what they have done in California is the California Congressional Black Caucus, the state level CBC, they announced in the last three or four days four major areas uh, that are going to be a reparations uh, rollout. And the way government apparatus works is once you get a program in government, and if you can entangle it in the bureaucracy, it becomes very difficult to get rid of, and it, and it can continue to be funded. So, you know, one of the things, you know, there's nothing sort of in the state of uh, reparations plan that's exciting, but they have made four, you know, areas, and one of the most important ones is going back and helping people recover assets from homes lost by um, by redevelopment. And, and uh, even though eminent domain is legal, um, uh, you know, they were able to use certain kinds of uh, methods to take people's property. And, it, and, and some of those families can get that property back or at least um, be able to sue, like we saw in, in, in L.A. a few years back, I mean, a, a couple of years back. Um, so, you know, so, so reparations in the city, um, uh the only thing that really has come out of it is uh, that the mayor has li- likes the idea of a historically black college or university uh, extension coming to San Francisco. Um, it was one of the ideas that I came up with um, and, and other committee members came up with, but we had 111 ideas that we, that we call reparations. We didn't have just cash. We had cash and 110 other areas. So the state is actually rolling out some of its um, uh, 
the state is actually rolling out some of our proposals. It's, just, it's going to be rolled out slowly, Carl. It's not going to happen overnight. But what, what I'm saying is, at the state of California level, we have reparations, um, uh, a, a infrastructure now. And now you've got to build on that infrastructure. And that's where politics comes in play. And that's where people like uh, uh, Shirley, um, Shirley Weber um, here in California, the sex, um, you know, where she played an important role in the reparations plan. So you need people like her. Um, Karen Bass was great when she was in the state legislature and getting things done around policing. I don't think she's for reparations in L.A. Um, if you notice, in almost every, almost every city, practically every city where there's a reparations um, committee, there's a black mayor in power put in place to make sure that we can't charge ongoing racism when they tell us no. And this is the Democrats doing this. This is not the Republicans. The Republicans, reparations is a non-starter. It's the Democrats who are afraid that reparations, just like the riots in the 60s, might get out of control and make them look bad. Just like, you know, they, they use critical race theory. They used, um, you know, uh, 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 so-called wokeness against, against the Democrats. They would use re reparations against the Democrats. And you can see that at the local level here in San Francisco, where the mayor who's a black woman from the projects, whose family was devastated by the very redevelopment, uh, um, de, you know, deconstruction of the community that we're focusing on, um, is, is the one who has manipulated and made sure that our committee was working for two years to effectively uh, come down with, you know, her, her championing one of our ideas, the, the HBCU coming out here to San Francisco. Um, all of the other ideas, you know, uh, San Francisco, for example, is going to uh, acknowledge the certificate of, of preference program that goes back 80 years, where when they did redevelopment and raised up the black community, 4,000 businesses, 40,000 families, I mean, 4,000 families, um, is they would allow people to come back first. So you have a right to return with these certificates. They have not been well enforced over the past 80 years, but the mayor is really working on that. Uh, aspect. So there are some some things are being tweaked, and things are you know there are policy areas that we're sneaking in that are bypassing Prop 209 that's anti-affirmative action. So that's a major achievement to get anything in related to black folk in California at the legislative level. In light of the fact that we operate, even our whole reparations idea is is um, operating under the umbrella or the threat of a 209 challenge, an anti-affirmative action challenge. So the fact that we have something in place in San Francisco, something in place in Sacramento at the, at the state level um, is, is progress because as black politics in California, we have not been able to do anything since 1996 in the name of being black. That's when Prop 209 was passed. So it's been, it's been 30 years since you know black folk have been able to organize and mobilize uh, around race at a time where it's, you know, being, you know, challenged all over the country by people like DeSantis. Um, so, again, you know, if I had a magic wand, would, would I, would I, I would wave all 111 items at once for us. And if I was the governor of California, I would do everything I could to ensure that we have, you know, uh, a, a, a reparations apparatus in place to build on. That's the way government works. You don't just get reparations. You got to get the you got to get the 
You got to get it in the bureaucracy and then, and then administer it. And, and what London Breed killed in San Francisco as a budgetary matter was she killed a two, first it was a $10 million a proposal, then they reduced it to $2 million, but she killed a $2 million budgeting for an office of reparations in San Francisco. Had London Breed, the black woman mayor uh, of San Francisco, allowed the office to exist, we would have been able to say, we got an office in San Francisco, and now we can spend the next 10, 15, 20 years figuring out how to do reparations or however long it takes, how to roll out reparations. So again, I know I'm saying a lot. It's, we're, we're not, it's like we used to say in church. Um, we're not where we want to be. We're not where we've been, you know, but thank God, you know, uh, I, I'm saying it backwards. We're not where we want to be, but thank God we're not where we were. And even though outsiders who are, you know, can criticize and say we didn't, you know, we made people believe that they were going to get reparations, et cetera. No, we didn't. We were asked to make a recommendation to the Board of Supervisors and let them decide. Um, and then they blamed it on the mayor and said the mayor in San Francisco controls 90% of the budget, and she does. What she has rolled out is something called the Dream Keepers Initiative, DKI, and it's an annual $50 million funding to black businesses and, and contracts. So there is, you know, she, she used reparations. To, pr- to, to promote her own program. So she knew these Chinese people in San Francisco were not going to uh, support our reparations, and they opposed us. So she kept the, the, the Dream Keepers program in place, and that didn't bother anybody, but it's actually working more like reparations than what we were after because it's mm-hmm. an ongoing funding of the black community. And again, this was not in place. Our reparations effort created the space for the DKI because even when we, whenever we met in, with the Board of Supervisors at City Hall, they always put reparations and DKI, the Dream Keepers Initiative in San Francisco, together. So reparations... Well, well, well let, me, let me jump in here and ask you this question, though, uh, Dr. Taylor, 29 minutes away from the top of the hour. The, the rep, some of the reparations advocates now say they want to get the issue in front of the two presidential candidates. There's a move saying if they don't support reparations, we shouldn't. We should withhold our vote. Your thoughts? Well, Trump is foolish enough to say yeah because he's ignorant and has no campaign, has no you know uh, you know um, no real you know um, platform. So he can easily say yeah, and that would change the game. I, I, I've said recently um, in, in an interview or two, wh- whoever says reparations first will win. You know, whoever says reparations first. We'll, we'll, we'll flip the script. But we know that Obama was able to bypass any accountability on reparations when Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote the article in The Atlantic in 2014. Um, Obama was still uh, in, the White, uh, in the White House. Obama never said a word. Well, oh, Biden, has, Biden was his vice president. So Biden learned from Obama, set up on reparations. Kamala Harris who was the vice president of Biden, was here in California. We've heard her say something negative about reparations. I ain't giving y'all nothing or something like that, she said one time in a campaign. Um, uh, So what I'm saying is London Breed in San Francisco, Karen Bass in Los Angeles, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Adams Adams in New York, Uh, this young man that just got elected in Chicago, the sister now in Philadelphia, in all these big black cities, in all these cities, 
where black people are mobilizing around reparations, they got black Democratic faces in place to make sure they keep a lid on it like London Breed did in San Francisco. Because San Francisco's reparations program was inspiring people all over the planet in Africa, in the West Indies, throughout the United States, throughout the state of California. We inspired people all over, and people are still doing it. In other words, they have not defeated reparations. What they've tried to do is keep a, a, a lid on it because, like I said, like the riots in the 60s or whatever, it would be used against the Democrats with the racist element. And so for that reason, the Democrats are afraid of reparations at the national level and at the state level. No major Democrat apart from Barbara Lee and the, and the Democratic Party has opposed Barbara Lee in California with what they did to her with the Senate seat, uh, Gavin Newsom and uh, Joe Biden. Um, uh but the only black, the only black, the only candidate in California who's a Democrat that supports reparations is Barbara Lee out of Oakland. Um, right, and hold that thought right there, Doc. We gotta take a short break here, and we come back. Uh, Christian's got a question for you, folks. We're discussing the black vote with our guest. He's a black politics expert. He he's a, works out at the University of San Francisco. His name, his name is Dr. James Taylor. You've heard him before. You got a question or a comment about what we should do come this election? Reach out to us at eight hundred four five zero seventy eight seventy six, and we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on ten ten WOLB, and in the DMV or on FM ninety five point nine and AM fourteen fifty. WOL, where information is power. And thanks for staying with us this morning, family. 21 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. James Taylor from the University of San Francisco. He's a black politics expert, and this is what he does, what he teaches in his class. He's one of the best in the business at analyzing Black politics. You got a question about black politics, especially with the election coming up? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Uh, before we go back to you, let me just remind you, coming up in the next few days, Dick Gregory's son, youngest son, Johansson, is going to be with us. We're going to talk about African Heritage Month and his, what his dad did. Also, civil rights activist Willie T. Ricks, William Musaka. Dada Ricks, he marched with Dr. King, Andrew Young, who's part of Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, and who's part of the group that founded SNCC, along with uh, John Lewis and uh, Mayor for Life, Marion Barry. So he's going to be here. We're going to talk about African Heritage Month, or Black History Month, as some people call it, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. You know, Dr. Taylor, before I take a call, I had a conversation last night with, with uh with Claude Anderson, Dr. Anderson was saying that he thinks that we don't have much leverage anymore because when he was on the scene, he was telling people that we need we need to coalesce around an issue and it could have been in reparations, could have been whatever, and form, a, it, not, it doesn't have to be our own political party, but our own political block. He, he thinks right now we don't have that leverage. I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, I agree with Dr. Anderson on, on, on almost everything. Uh, you know, I, I, think, I see myself as a younger, a slightly younger, well, not slightly, a younger version of him. Um, but because uh, we, I, you know, most of his policy positions I agree with. Um, and I do agree that, you know, we should organize around our interests um, and hold people accountable. And, and we've been trying to find a balance of power strategy, um, a swing vote strategy, an independent influence strategy, independent party strategy. And, you know, we've talked about this on your show before. If you go back to the Reconstruction period, black people had a bunch of political parties. We have more political parties in the 1800s than we did in the 1900s. Um, uh, we, you know, even, and then we 
did strategies like they did in Chicago with Mayor of Washington, where black Democrats ran a, a Democrat, a black Democrat versus white Democrat strategy. And when Howard Washington beat Jane Byrne, uh, and, um, and, and so uh, Walter Mondale had endorsed Byrne and it upset a black Chicago. So black Chicago consolidated behind Howard Washington, but it was a intra-party, I-N-T-R-A party strategy, where they used black people were so creative, and this is no other group is like this. The black group ran against the Democrats in Chicago, and, and, and what made Fannie Lou Hamer and, um, and Ella Baker famous, less Ella Baker, but more Fannie Lou Hamer, was that they did the same thing in Mississippi with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 64. They ran against the white Democrats, and they got mistreated, but they beat the white Democrats. That happened in Chicago in the 80s, and going backwards in the 60s in, in Mississippi. But we have not really, there's a lot of parties out there. There's a lot of, in fact, I'm meeting with a brother later today who's running in Oakland on the hip hop party ticket, and he wants me to advise him. There, you know, there's a lot of uh, emergent black parties around the country at the local level. And I think all of those black political parties should be challenging the Democrats and the Republicans at the local level. At the state level, we have to use a different strategy. At the national level, we have to use a different strategy until we get strong like Dr. Anderson wants us to. But we have to get used to challenging Democrats at the local level. So it should be a black party everywhere locally to challenge the Democratic Party and force it to our positions by raising our positions, by saying we want reparations, by saying we want to end to, you know, the uh, police killings, things of that sort, and hold those politicians accountable. So this goes back to your question about Biden and Trump and reparations. Like I say, whoever says reparations first wins. And, um, and I think, you know, Biden is a no for sure. Biden thinks, you know, the Build Back Better and the, and the PPP and the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act and the insulin reduction, price reduction are his, his ways of doing reparations without calling it because it's a $5 trillion investment, um, mainly in stuff that would benefit uh, working class and, and lower middle class people. And this is the first time since the new deal of FDR that you've had this kind of domestic infrastructure investment in buildings. Biden's going all over America through Pete Buttigieg, and they're looking at all of the cities in America where racists built infrastructure to close black people off, to put us on the other side of the tracks, to make sure like in Newark, New Jersey, we couldn't drive in buses as domestic workers. Uh, they, they made the overpasses in Newark, even though Ross Baraka is the black mayor there in the 60s. They made the overpasses so low so buses could not come through with black women on the buses who worked as domestics in those Newark, New Jersey uh, houses. So Buttigieg and Biden are going around knocking bridges down in Buffalo. There was a bridge, uh, there was an expressway uh, 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 designed to, to kill off black businesses by bypassing it. In Gary, Indiana, racist in the 60s, sealed off an overpass, closing off Black Gary from the rest of this town that was white, um, a nearby town, and it's been there for 50-plus years, and Biden is knocking it down. Those are the, the, the things that a lot of our people don't know about. And, I'm not, again, I'm not a Democrat. You heard me criticizing them on reparations. But I think, I think again, um, you know, when you look at what Dr. Anderson is talking about, we need what Ron Walters, the great uh, late professor from Howard and from University of Maryland, was trying to do with Jesse Jackson at first. Jesse Jackson kind of wedded us to the Democratic Party permanently for like the next 60 to 70 years, and then Obama came because we were on the verge of independence. 
We had the 1972 National Black Political Convention. We kept having meetings over the next decade trying to come with an independent black party strategy. And then Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88 wedded us to the Democratic Party even more. And then you had Bill Clinton claiming to be the first black president. And then you had a black president show up. So we're probably stuck as a majority group with the Democratic Party for the next 80 years. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. You know, that's, that's, yeah. and, 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 and the evidence is when we became Republicans in 1856, we remained Republicans until 1964. We've only been Democrats since 1964. We've been, we were Republicans twice as long. We've still got another 50 years from now to have been Democrats for as long as we were Republicans. Uh, and we're the only group in America who has switched parties like that um, uh in, in a particular way, and then also use internal strategies. We've tried a lot of different approaches as black people. Our history is, is saturated with efforts by men and women trying to figure out how to make America's party system work for black people. And, you know, hearing people talk about the plantation or hearing, you know, Kanye come out and say foolish things or, or you know, Charleston White or... Um, you know, I'm hearing more and more black conservative. I mean, black people are running around talking about they're going to vote for Trump and Latinos talking about they're going to vote for Trump. Um, you know, I think if you have your own accountable infrastructure, you know, where we have a policy platform, where we uh, vet out candidates, um, that would help, you know, have more discipline in our politics. But right now with the Internet, everybody's all over the place everywhere, Carl, and you know how the Internet works. People are trying to get shock value, and so you'll find some black people say the most shocking things, um, you know, even talking about they're not worried about, you know, the fascists coming to America, or they're not worried about racism, things of that sort. In reality, um, I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, black people and their allies should go wherever Democrats and Republicans are and raise the question of reparations and force them into a position. But, but we should also be developing our own local part, party strategy. We can't do national yet. We got to do a local strategy and then at some point develop a larger uh, united effort across those uh, states. But we need a black political party. Like, uh, in, in, like I've always said, the Panthers should have created the Black Panther Party that was a political party. They ran in 73, Bobby uh, Seale and Elaine Brown, as Democrats. But they should have run as Black Panther Party candidates and kept the Black Panther Party only in Oakland. We don't need a Black Panther Party in Chicago necessarily, you know, or in Philadelphia. Call it something else in Philadelphia. Call it something else in North Carolina. Call it something else in Georgia. But everywhere black people are, about 20% of the electorate, we should have a black 
independent party strategy at the local level aimed at Democrats trying to get them to our policy positions. And um, it was, this is what the Green Party did. The Green Party would run against the Democrats locally and force the Democrats into a Green Party policy position. That's what I think we should be doing. I think that is something that Dr. Anderson would support. If we could create a, a infrastructure of independent black politics at the local level, um, we would be on our way. And if we're 40 percent, you know, 50 percent, like in you know parts of Mississippi and South Carolina, Georgia, uh, Washington, D.C., Maryland, areas over there, we could, you know, we could have a, a viable black political party strategy, but it would have to be local. It could not come from a national black political party um, because we don't have the, the recent um, memory of these histories of our ancestors and elders creating political parties. Like I said, somewhere after 72, when we were trying to create an independent party, and 84, when Jesse ran the idea of an independent black party kind of died out at this national level. So what you have now is scores of people listen to your show who have independent party uh, strategies because they always reach out to me after we talk when we have these kind of conversations. So there are a lot of independent party uh, organizations in the black community. They don't have good funding. They don't have good marketing. They can't get their messages out there, their platforms. Um, they should be able to with the Internet. Um, but with the internet, there's so much noise that it's hard to get, you know, anybody's attention. Right. And hold that thought right there. Could come on a break, but we I got a bunch of folks already got questions for you. Doctor Taylor is a political scientist family. Uh, Joseph's on line one, calling from Massachusetts, has a question for you. Good morning, Joseph. You're on with Doctor Taylor. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Doctor Taylor. Yes, sir. Yeah, I have a bone to pick with you, Dr. Taylor. I know you're well-knowledgeable, well-read. You work hard for your knowledge. But I think the problem with the black community is the young people are walking around with their head cut off like a chicken. They don't really know how things got started. And that's where I have the bone to pick with you. As a runaway kid, 13 years old, grew up in the streets of New York, hanging at Bryant Park, Washington Square Park, Tompkins Square Park, Union, you name it. I hang with a lot of five percenters. You bring up the five percenters movement, and you say, and a lot of people say it started, it's an offshoot of the Nation of Islam, started in March number seven in Harlem. But that's not true. I hung up with a lot of five percenters growing up. The two driving force behind rap music is a 5% movement. Right. And, and Joseph, do us a favor because we come up on a break. Put it in a, a question form so he can respond. Well, that's the problem. When when people try to give real knowledge and facts so we could get somewhere, we, we bamboos them. And that's what it is. The 5% movement came from the Father Divine movement. It's not an offshoot of the nation of Islam. It came from a Christian. Father Divine was a Christian. The rappers got their 5% movement. 5% movement started in the state prison system. We need to tell the young people the truth, how things get started. Else we won't get nowhere. We can't have driving forces because we belong to certain organizations telling stuff that's not true. We need to tell the truth about dancehall reggae influence with rap music. The question I have for you is that I'll put it in a question. We talk so much about reparation, reparation, reparation. So that means foreign-born blacks can't get reparation? Some of your pioneer rappers have foreign-born black in them. Salt and Pepper, Dougie Fresh, Chubb Rock, KRS-One. 
These, we need to tell the people the truth. Else we won't get nowhere. That's what. That's the question I have to you. How can we learn to deal right. with facts? I'll I, I let him respond on, on the other side of this break. Thank you, Joseph. I thank you for your phone call. Seven minutes away from the top there. As I mentioned, we've got to step aside and have, have a quick break. We've got a bunch of other folks who want to speak with Dr. Taylor. You, too, can join the conversation. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV. We're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, where information is power. And thanks for rolling with us, family. A minute after the top of the hour, our guest, Dr. James Taylor from the University of San Francisco. Dr. Taylor's a political scientist. He's an expert on black politics and discussing what's going to happen to the black vote. What should we do? These are the answers you're getting this morning. So a bunch of folks want to talk to you, Dr. Taylor, but I'll let you uh, respond to to our last caller from Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah that, that was all over the place because, uh, you know, we were talking about a black political party. Then he talked about uh, youth and chickens, uh, you know, walking around with their heads cut off. And I had just said that, you know, we need institutions to, you know, pro, you know, to extend memory that we don't have said we don't have the memory of our ancestors efforts towards independent party and independent politics. If we had that memory as a people, in other words, the generations would convey to the next generation that this is something we've, we've done and we got to continue to build on. Like if we, we need to convey now to the next generation, you must continue to fight for reparations. We started it. We got some things in place. Uh, the only way it's really going to happen is you keep on pressing it. So that, you know, that's important. And and part of my answer to, to the brother is, you know, in, in his reference to Father Divine and Father Allah, Clarence uh, 13X and the five percenters, just like our independent party strategy, those were independent black institutions that we created after we left the South and we migrated to the cities like Chicago and Newark, New Jersey and Baltimore and um, you know, places like Harlem, where you had the urban cults, um, like the Five Percenters, the Nation of Islam, the Morris Science Temple, the Black Hebrew Israelites, they're all still there. And they are proof, no matter what your Christian or other beliefs are, they are proof that we can create our own independent institutions. The Nation of Islam is the most successful. And the Nation of Islam could turn itself into a political party or create a political party wing if Farrakhan was maybe in his 30s and not his 80s. Um, he had promised at the Million Man March. I was there. Farrakhan promised at the Million Man March to create a third force. He promised that in 72 in Gary, Indiana as well. This is in my book on black nationalism. Farrakhan was at Gary, representing the Nation of Islam. He said a third force in, in 1872. He said a third force in 1995. Here it is, 2024. The Nation of Islam has the infrastructure. They have the people where they could, if they wanted to, start a black political party overnight. Because they have, we have that, we have those institutions like the Five Percenters, like the Morris Science Temple. We created those. There were more urban cults in Chicago than there were mainline Baptist and Methodist churches amongst black people. That's true about Newark, New Jersey. That's true about Baltimore. That's true about Harlem. Those urban cults from the Nation of Islam, from Noble Jew Ali, from Father Divine, from Daddy Grace, all of those men created independent black institutions 
And if you did, even if you didn't like the content of their teachings, they were independent of anybody white. And that's what we can learn from the urban cults. The problem is we got so much religion in our in our in our heads that we won't, you know, see the value of the independence of these institutions. And where are they well placed? Locally, wherever Black America is, like I said, we need an independent, um, uh, you know, uh, party. And then he, then the brother talked about. Um, oh, and the book I would re- recommend for anybody that wants to read about what I'm talking about, the urban cults. This. Google any book at Amazon. Just go on Amazon and put up Father Divine. You'll, you'll see a bunch of books. But also, there's a book called Black Metropolis by Sinclair Drake. Um, uh, uh, um, and, and I'm having a brain a brain flip right now. But the, uh, the Black Metropolis um, is, is by Horace Caton, C-A-Y-T-O-N, and Sinclair Drake. And it's one of the best urban sociology studies ever. And it explains how we created moving from the plantations of the South into the urban environment, we couldn't afford cathedrals. We couldn't afford big chapels, so we bought storefront churches in the hood. And we created a whole institutional reality in every black city, but because of our Christian background, we always condemn Father Divine. We always condemn the Nation of Islam. We always condemn the Five Percenters. We condemn the Hebrew Israelites. Meanwhile, we don't have a black Christian independent institution like we have these black urban cult institutions. Where is black Christianity independent in America? Where is it leading independence in America? But I'll tell you what has the Nation of Islam, the Morris Science Temple, the Five Percenters, and for the brother who called, Many of those young brothers in the 5% nation of gods and earths, they, they are better people. They are, they, are, they are outstanding young men and women in New York, in Brooklyn, and in Harlem, where they call one Mecca um, and, and the other one Medina. Uh, they, they, they believe that we're ancient people. They were taught that we were here before time, practically. They believe in themselves as gods and earths and through hip hop, you're right, brother. That's how um, that's how a lot of our young brothers have come into consciousness. Many of my friends, my my generation is the first generation to really embrace um, the five percenters. I grew up around and with five percenters in New York. My friends were five percenters. Allah would stand for arms, legs, legs, arms, head. That's what they that's what that's, that's what they would do with Allah. Allah, the word is spelled A L L A H. And they would say A is for arm, L is for leg, leg, A is for arm, and H is for head. The name Allah basically points to a God, a man. And they believe that the black man is God, and the black woman is, 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 is an extension of that. So that kind of psychology is as powerful when a Christian reads Philippians 4, 13 and says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Well, the five percenters have that same confidence when they go and show and prove when they get together up in Harlem still. In fact, the Republican mayor of New York City, a mayor named Ryan, R-Y-A-N, became friends with Father Allah, Clarence 13X, and that's where most mayors started uh, supporting urban cults. Uh, Father Divine had a great relationship with the New York City mayor. Uh, Father Allah had a great relationship with the Republicans, and that's how they have their their uh, headquarters still in Harlem. It was given to them by New York City because when there were some riots in the 60s in Harlem, in 64, I believe it was, in uh, 63, uh, 64, um, 
Clarence 13X walked the streets of Harlem and calmed young brothers down. Uh, and, and Clarence 13X was at the mosque in um, Harlem, number seven, at the same time Malcolm was. So the brother's a little bit inaccurate there when he's talking about that's not where the five percent started. That's where the five percent say their 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 wisdom and their knowledge. Um, you know, of course they related to Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam and Master Fraud Muhammad, but at the local level, it had to do with Malcolm breaking away from a nation. It had to do with these uh, young brothers called the Blood Brothers, who were a gang that did a riot while Malcolm was in Africa. Malcolm denied them and act like he didn't know them, and they and Malcolm broke their hearts. And most people don't know about this, but Clarence 13X left the nation from the same temple at the same time that Malcolm left, but for different reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Father Allah had come to a whole nother knowledge. So I'm just saying back to that brother, be careful when you talk about the, the, dis, you know, the disconnection in knowledge of young people, because it is in the area of our urban institutions. I, I don't want to call them cults, our urban sex, S-E-C-T-S, our urban sex and institutions, they are the one place where our young people are still learning about themselves as powerful young people. So I, I, I reject that right. part of, of, of his talk. Yeah, and, 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 and was, we got so many people want to talk to you, Doc. Real so, quick, real quick, I mentioned yeah. 14 West Indian and Caribbean and African countries that are demanding reparations all over the world. So um, to ask me, a black American, if other blacks should get reparations, you know, I support reparations for black people everywhere. But strategically, black America has to fight here. We need Africans to fight there. We need West Indians to fight there. We don't need Africans in America fighting black Americans over reparations. Uh, or, or, or West Indians fighting black Americans over reparations in America. That's where that Tariq Nasheed um, adult foolishness comes from. And we don't need Africans, you know, being hostile to black Americans attempt to get reparations that they well deserve. All right. Tanner, after the top there, I've got a bunch of folks. I've got tweets uh, uh, for you as well. So if you can show up on the answers, I'd appreciate it. Christian's online too next. Good morning, Christian. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Morning, man. The doctor has lost his good name, and he's killing me with this stuff. This is called window dressing. Newsom selected several people to be on that committee for reparations, and then he told them that whatever they refer to him, he can override. The first thing is, no, if you select us on a committee, you're going to have to accept our committee. That's why you chose us. This is called window dressing. I've been in high places where you come into a, a place for a meeting, and they have a sister or a black person at the reception desk, and then as soon as you get past the reception desk, there's a sea of whiteness. These guys met for two and a half years, and he's talking about a black person in Oakland who enrolled in the community college and Zoom on a black history class in Atlanta. That's what reparations is, and it's all lies. It's a 14-point document they send him. For example, if you're in prison, 
it's a more solitary confinement. It's a lie. Because if I could kill two people, I can't go into the general population. It's just window dressing. I got Fatty Lou Hamer and Mega Ever sitting next to me. California has 27 million available acres, land acres. We didn't get in that one acre. How much money did we get? This guy, only way we can get his name back is he got to say, we're not voting for Newsom. I'm not signing that petition and get the rest of them. We're not signing it, and we're not voting for the people that put us in here. That's the only way we can get his name back. Otherwise, wait, it's, it's, wait, all right, let's give him a chance to respond. And, you and, and you're not going to do nothing. And you're not going to do nothing. And that was going to be my first question to you. When you finish talking about what everybody else has done and didn't do, I wanted to ask you, brother, what have you done? You want to talk about what we've done. We, we've moved the needle, brother. And if you're not satisfied with it, what have you been doing? What organizing are you doing? What organization are you creating? See, I'm on the front lines. So you can sit here and criticize us and talk about what Newsom did and didn't do. Did I sound like I was happy with what the, the Democrats have done with reparations? Hell no. I said we should challenge them now everywhere they go. London Breeze shouldn't be able to go in public in a debate coming up uh, uh, between now and March uh, where she can't be asked, where, where she shouldn't be asked the question of reparations. And the black community in San Francisco says they intend to do that, to, to put the issue of reparations to the local political situation. But again, you know, it's, it's easy to talk. It's easy to call in and criticize. It's easy to have an opinion about what's, what's window dressing. We put together 111 issue areas impacting black people, brother. You name 111 issue areas that you can identify in a coherent, intelligent, and informative way that you're not afraid to put in public for the whole world to see. We did that. We've inspired people. Right. Hold that thought right there, Doc. We got, we got to take a quick break here. I, I think we get we get the point. Thirteen minutes after the top, they have family. We're discussing politics, black politics, with black politics expert Dr. James Teller. He's a political scientist, teaches at the University of San Francisco, one of the best in the business. Students rush to get in his class each semester, but now you've got him on the radio for free. And you got a question? Reach out to us at eight hundred four five zero seventy eight seventy six, and we'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on ten ten W O L B, and in the D M V we're on F M ninety five point nine and A M fourteen. W-O-L, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. James Taylor from the University of San Francisco, talking politics with Dr. Taylor. You want to join the conversation, 800-450-7876. Brother Haki is up next. He's on line three calling from Baltimore. Brother Haki, good morning. You're on with Dr. Taylor. Good morning, Dr. Taylor. It's always good to hear you, always sharing some wisdom and knowledge, and you're bringing some fire today, so I appreciate it. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you, Carl. Um, Thank you. I'm actually, Thank you. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I'm actually I'm here actually at the uh, the courthouse in Greenbelt today. Uh, Marilyn Mosby is uh, preparing to step out of the vehicle and uh, come in uh, for the deliberations that's going to be uh, that the jury is going to start uh, this morning. And um, just my personal little commentary. Um, um, you know, I'm a little shocked that um, that many, for instance, uh, black elected officials all over the state of Maryland, and even those that listen to this radio show, uh, have not like even shown up like a uh, one time. So I don't know where that's about knowing 
the history of the counterintelligence program. And there was an NPR article or like a news clip from maybe some years ago that showed how, you know, why and why black elected officials are targeted. And I'm a paraphrase. It's something to the effect of how they target black officials because black officials can't, cannot, you know, afford to pay the legal fees. Uh, former state's attorney, Marilyn Mosley has paid like over half a million dollars in legal fees uh, for this case. And, um, and not that, you know, you expect for individuals to, you know, pay it, but you, you, I, I just saw leadership like kind of diverse, diverge from a, just, you know, kind of get out of, out of her way, you know, and just like leave her. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. right. and brother Hockey, put yeah. in the question yeah. for him so so uh, Dr. Taylor can respond. Well, thank you, thank you, Carl. And, and no, that's that's basically it. I just want to say, you know, just um, why do we just? I mean, why black uh, officials that even don't have nothing to lose, and they claim that they fight, you know, against oppression, uh, you know, have have left this system? That's what I'll say. Thank you. All right, Dr. Taylor, you want to respond to anything that brother Hockey uh, said yeah. about Mally Mosby? Well, just that, you know, I'm not surprised um, that that's happening. It happened here in San Francisco. Uh, they recalled uh, Chesa Boudin. Uh, it's happening over in Alameda County in Oakland, where a black woman DA, Pam Price, is being recalled by a group of Asian and, uh, business people. Um, it's happening in Oakland now. The, some of the black communities going after the mayor there um, to, to, to recall her because her policies, you know, have been very disappointing in terms of crime, et cetera. Um, you know, this happened down in L.A. with uh, with Gascon, uh, where they recall Gascon. So in all of the cities, even in uh, Philadelphia, I mean, in Boston, I think it was, or Philly, uh, wherever there's sort of progressive law enforcement efforts, you have people coming after them. And it's typically Democrats coming after other Democrats. Democrats recalled everybody I'm talking about. Democrats recalled Gascon. Democrats recalled uh, Chester Boudin up in San Francisco. Democrats are trying to recall Pam Price over in Alameda. So, uh, the, you know, and I've always put, um, you know, uh, uh, Attorney Mobley in that same camp of people, you know, trying to make changes from within, and then the system, you know, comes down. And look at look at what happened down with Fannie, uh, Fannie uh, um, I think Lewis down in um, down in Atlanta, right? I mean, this woman was a crusader coming to get Trump, right? And next thing you know, there's a big scandal that's blown that whole situation in Atlanta out of the water, you know. And so it's unfortunate that a uh, system only was targeted. I'm not surprised. Um, and that's why you need your own, we need independent ent- entities to, um, you know, to, to, to help um, in, in times like these. All right. 800-450-7876-24 minutes after the top. Yeah, Pamela's joining us from Upper Marlboro. Pamela's on line five. Good morning, Pamela. Good morning, and thank you for taking my um, call. Uh, I have a comment and a question uh, for Dr. Taylor. Uh, I want to borrow from the segment you had with Molly Bell uh, on the 31st of January. I think that we should uh, approach voting black folks. We should approach voting with the mantra, don't let one item, and I want to embellish this, or any item stop us from voting for the best condition that we will be in after the election is over. Voting is the only system here in America that we have that we can have a voice, we can exercise our fundamental rights, and we can push our agendas. Why don't we do the infighting within the Democratic Party, like you said earlier, Fannie Lou Hamer did, and like what happened in the 1960s when the Dixie Democrats 
left the Democratic Party and flipped to the Republican Party, to which we have now, which are Confederate Dixie-minded Democrats and Fox Posing called Republicans, all because the Democratic Party in 1964 was fighting for our civil rights and in 1965 was fighting for our voting rights, both of which we achieved. So why can't we continue with the strategy of infighting within the Democratic Party? And the other thing I want to uh, just share is that if people think that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in this system are both evils, then why don't we just vote for the lesser of the two evils? We know what Trump is going to do if he gets into office, because he's already told us. He's going to do away with democracy. He's going to do, uh, do away with black America and America, period, because he's going to be a dictator. So why can't we do and use the strategy of uh, infighting within the Democratic Party as black people? All right. Thanks, Pamela. I agree. Um, I, you know, unfortunately, we've always had to deal with a lesser evil strategy. And again, the solution is a multi-party system, but nobody's talking about that. You know, people, you know, who, who might be critical of blacks as Democrats need to realize blacks were first Republicans for over a century. And they've been Democrats for about 60 years. So we are trying to figure out how to make this system work. But if you were in like in England, where you have a multi-party system, black people would be in a great position. Because if we were a block vote in that environment, it could really work. But the way it is now is all kinds of issues get lined up together in the New Deal Democratic Civil Rights Coalition, and then you have the Republican Conservative Coalition uh, in, in this country. Um, the other, I, I want to bring something else out to call, and that is you know, the one caller mentioned COINTELPRO. I would also say we need to be aware that a lot of these black politicians, including those that may have abandoned system mobility, are afraid because APAC, the Israel lobby, um, the, uh, the, uh, the American Israeli uh, Political Action Committee is called APAC. Uh, before the NRA was broken, uh, it, the NRA was the most powerful uh, instru- uh, you know, lobby, but now APAC is. And APAC has openly been exposed. Uh, by the brother that's running the, the actor that went to Harvard. I, I can't think of his name right this second, but he's running for the Senate. Um, Bill Harper. Uh, he said they came, they came to him with $20 million to run up against, uh, I think, Corey Bush or to run for Senate against a sister. And the APAC is using money to raise up Negroes who they can run against black people to the right of them. And APAC is also trying to fund opposition. Wherever black politicians are, the Israeli lobby right now is targeting black politicians because black politicians have spoken out more for Palestine than they have for reparations. And so that has irritated APAC. So now they're going after uh, these black politicians, and a lot of them are running scared since APAC has put its laser on them. All right. And folks, be mindful of what he just said. Correct. 28 after the top there. Let's go to Chicago. Brother Nkosi is joining us. He's on line one. Brother Nkosi, good morning. You're on with Dr. Taylor. Jumbo, my brothers. Jumbo. Uh, I'd like to say that, uh, Dr. Taylor, you brought the fire, man, when you, uh, when you expressed the concept that it's small groups that can break away from the Democratic Party, treat it as if it's the Republican Party, and make some changes. That's right. Small groups, I've been involved in one at one point in time, can have a very huge impact on making changes for the black community. And I don't think that those points can be emphasized enough. Uh, and, and how to encourage young people to be involved in such movement. Uh, right. the, uh, uh, my question for you, 
you have answered it already, is uh, at the end of the show, uh, when, be prior to your leaving, could you repeat the name of that book about Black Metropolis? I think it may have yeah, some of the solutions that, that that's, you that's were talking title. about. Yeah, that's the title, and it's by uh, Drake, um, Sinclair Drake, D-R-A-K-E, and Horace Caton, C-A-Y-T-O-N, Drake and Caton. It's it's one of the, Mm -hmm. other than Du Bois' Black Philadelphia, it's probably the best urban black sociology book ever written to basically explain Emmett Till, you know, the, the migration from Mississippi to Chicago, you know, the development of black community in Chicago, the gangs, the independent church institutions we created. Um, you know, in other words, the fact that the Nation of Islam is still around, the fact that the Morris Science Temple and the Five Percenters are still around, shows that we have the capacity to create local independent entities. The, the problem is our talented people that could do it are all in the Democratic camp. If you had Cory Bush and Ayanna Presley, you know, leading these initiatives, that young sister uh, Jasmine Crawford put them sisters in the front line of a black political effort, we'd be along our way. Problem is. A lot of black politicians in, in the Democratic column, I always say this, they tend to be uh, Democrats first and black conscious second. And that is the problem of, of, of black people in the Democratic Party, is that black Democratic leadership is more partisan than it is um, identified uh, in, in efforts that the black community is, is, is committed to, like reparations, where, it, again, in San Francisco, the black woman mayor who suffered the injury that we're organizing around opposed it um, uh, by being passive-aggressive towards it. Um, so so that's, that's part of our reality. Um, but, you know, a lot of people won't vote. Uh, the other sister talked about, you know, the achievements we had through, through elections, and she was talking about voting. Um, and I always use this as my test. If I hear somebody saying don't vote, I ask myself, did your mama vote? If your mama voted, you vote. If your mama didn't vote, then you're running around talking about don't vote. So that's my test. I'm from the projects. My mother voted. And I watch other people in the projects, mamas not vote. And as we grew up, I just noticed the people whose mothers, and, and it was mainly mamas, the mamas who didn't vote their kids didn't care nothing about politics. And they just threw their hands up in the air and said the whole system is weak and whack. But they were never invested in the first place. All right. Thanks, Brother Nkosi. All righty. Thank you, uh, Dr. Taylor, a bunch of tweets for you as well as calls. Uh, his tweet says, uh, since you just mentioned that Donald Trump could promise reparations to the black American descendants of enslaved people, if Donald Trump will promise reparations to black Americans, how with this, how with his fact-checked and verified lying, uh, lying past, can black voters believe him? And it goes on right. to say, please no, continue to that, that, educate and politically immature black voters on how to correctly evaluate the politics of reparations and advise them on the needed sophisticated nature of their appropriate political participation in the ongoing process and not to continue to be frustrated, divided and conquered. Right. So we, once, right. how, how can we trust Donald Trump? Basically, he's saying, because, you know, he's, well, he's, you he's can, got a, a reputation of being Donald a liar. You can trust Donald Trump like you can any other politician. They all lie. He just lies more and more openly, and you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't trust it because um, he's not going to follow through. He has no, no heart towards it, no infrastructure towards it. He admitted, if you remember, in a speech, he said, you all built this country. You know, he told that a black church that we built this country, and that was a big concession. Well, say reparations after that. Bernie Sanders, 
I've heard Bernie give all of the data about the disparities between the haves and the have-nots, the 1% and the 99%. And Bernie acknowledged that blacks got the worst at the bottom of the 99%, but Bernie would not come out and say reparations. So all three parties, whether it's Bernie and as a, as a Democrat or a socialist or Cornell West, Cornell West is a black man running for president and ain't mentioning reparations. He got Palestine on his tongue, but he don't got reparations on his tongue. And he's born and raised in California. He's from Sacramento. His city is considered reparations. His school district is considering reparations. The state um, capital where he lives is considering reparations. But, but Cornell West ain't doing nothing but running like Bernie Sanders in blackface on the same issues that Bernie ran on twice. And didn't mention reparations. I, I think Cornel West is derelict for running as he is without mentioning reparations. He even came to my campus as a part of our reparations effort for that brother that was saying earlier that, you know, it was all window dressing. We brought Cornel West to our campus first in San Francisco on my campus. Um, and he uh, talked about reparations. And it was a hypocritical moment because he knew that he openly condemned uh ta Coates and called him uh, Uncle Tom of some kind because uh, ta Coates was getting some of his attention, and, and Cornell West couldn't take it. And Cornell West condemned that young brother when Cornell West knows Ta-Nehisi Coates' daddy is the publisher of black classic books and a, a, a black publisher. That's who ta Coates' daddy is. So imagine how his daddy feel about Cornell West calling his son and Uncle Tom when ta Nehisi Coates grew up in a house with a black publisher. So, yeah, and hold that thought right there, Dr. Taylor. When we come back, I'll let you finish up on that. And also talk about RFK, because it seems like these independent candidates are peeling uh, uh, voters away, that the polls are showing, from the two major candidates for, for the presidency in uh, November. So I'll let you talk about, finish talking about Cornell West, but also RFK is polling higher than both than Cornell West. Family, you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And thanks for rolling with us, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. James Taylor from the University of San Francisco. He's a political scientist, he's a black politics expert, and, you know, he's explaining to us how this game is played, because it is a game. Before we go back to him, let me remind you, coming up in the next few days, we're going to hear from Dick Gregory's youngest son, Johanse, and also civil rights activist, William Macasa Bapa Riggs is going to join us as well. So, if you are, are in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 4. 1450 WOL. All right, uh, Dr. Taylor, the question was uh, was about uh, the uh, independent candidates. You mentioned Cornell West, and but also J- RFK is polling in double digits, and, and both parties seem to be concerned, even though it seems to be pulling more voters away from Biden. They want to get your thoughts on, on, on the yeah, RFK and, and, and the other ones. And don't forget, uh, uh, Manchin in West Virginia is talking about running the independent campaign. Uh, there's also a uh, idea of no party. There's a, a whole movement where uh, uh, people are trying to choose neither party, a kind of independent effort of, against both. RFK is able to attract people just because the world has changed with the Internet. Anybody, you know, behind any kind of effort can get people behind them. Um, a lot of his talk, 
you know, is just as nutty as, um, as you know, some of the talk with, uh, with, uh, with the MAGA crowd. You know, he sounds like a, a, a Democratic MAGA at times when he's talking about the environment. Um, and just a lot of, you know, his whole thing is, is sort of the paranoia, you know, the distrust of government, um, the conspiracy theories, things that aren't, you know, fixing people's lives or feed, putting food on their table. They like to keep people confused. The, the, the only a candidate who's running on reparations is a white woman named Marianne Williamson. She's actually articulated reparations. Now, her effort is only like $500 billion when, uh, you know, the best research says it should be about 20, 15 of $20 trillion. But at least she's talking about it openly. Marianne Williamson is. Um, and I wish Cornell West was more like her because him advocating a reparations or running a reparations campaign is just what the reparations movement would need right now. But because he's a Marxist who's going to think class first and race, if at all, um, Cornell West will not emphasize anything that's black first. Um, Cornell West wants to, uh, everybody to love each, everybody. You know, he calls Trump, he calls DeSantis his brother. Uh, everybody's Cornell West's brother. I ain't, I, I ain't never heard him say nobody wasn't his brother. Uh, he got too many brothers. I got, I got two brothers. I ain't got, I ain't got a whole bunch of brothers. But every time Cornell opens his mouth, he's talking about somebody's his brother. RFK, you know, again, in my opinion, is an outlier. Um, I don't think he'll have any impact. I think, you know, the closer and the Democrats are doing everything they can to isolate him and the other independent candidates through the um, primary process. Biden didn't even put himself on in New Hampshire or uh, um, Iowa and still won as a write-in. Um, so <clears throat> the Democrats are going to do all they can to frustrate these independent candidates, just like they did Bernie Sanders in, in, in his two runs. And they should expect that. Um, and that's part of the game. <clears throat> right. All right, I got a tweet question for you, 17 away from the top. Yeah, a tweeter says, isn't it true that none of the presidents ever stopped the immigrants from entering into the states? And, and the tweeter goes on to say, on 60 Minutes on Sunday, saw Chinese who were not stopped at the border. These people were organized and dropped off. Can, and they, can you talk about why the Republicans are refusing to work out a deal with Biden to stop the, the illegal immigration? Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's really hurting a lot of black communities, too, uh, like Chicago. Um, and it's angered black Chicago because they're, again, black, black Chicago is seeing reparations and they're seeing millions being given to the, the migrants and these undocumented people. And I even saw one clip where a man, uh, one of the migrants, uh, yelled at the black group that was, you know, you know criticizing their presence and said, you guys are lazy. You don't work. Now, we built the country, um, you know over the past 400 years, and, you know, they're going to talk about, you know, we don't work. And a lot of these um, migrant groups, the countries they're coming from, like Venezuela, um, uh, you know, um, uh, places like uh, Colombia, 
are very conservative, anti-left, you know, anti-Marxist, uh, anti-communist uh, countries uh, because of their histories. So they come here like the Cubans of Miami are very conservative and hostile to black people. And we know from Richard Pryor's jokes in the 70s and Toni Morrison's writing, that as soon as a Latino <clears throat> who comes across the border can say the N-word, <clears throat> they know they made it into America. You know, Richard Pryor told a joke about that, uh, how the N-word makes them Americans, any immigrant. So I'm not surprised uh, by that. This is a border state. Uh, Gavin Newsom has raised the issues. And, 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 the, and the, um, the Speaker of the House, Johnston, um, and the Republican Party has been exposed. It, and it's not like them not doing anything now is going to help them. It's actually going to hurt them if they don't come up with a bipartisan agreement, primarily because the cat's out the bag. Donald Trump said, don't do anything on the border so I can use this against Biden. And um, all the Republicans have been saying this is criminal, like Biden should be impeached for not enforcing the border. And it turns out that's the, the, that's the political strategy of Donald Trump. His campaign strategy is to be able to use more of what got him uh, the nomination in 2016 is more xenophobia, more jingoism, you know, more um, fear of the other. Um, and, and so that's, you know, part of the issue. But again, you know, Ronald Walters talked about this. Ronald Walters talked about how black Democrats will, will look at the immigration issue and will be like, you know, like Mark Lamont Hill, all sympathetic for everybody else but black people. You know, that's my problem with Mark Lamont Hill. He, Mark Lamont Hill will fall on the hill for anything and everybody else, but when it comes to black folk like Cornell West, he starts stammering and stuttering and, and sounding confused. So, you know, the border, you know, um, in, in a lot of cities, uh, the, you know, this has caused a tension within a Democratic Party. On foreign policy, that's what's really hurting Biden, is embracing Netanyahu and this whole genocidal of, of, of violence we're seeing in, um, in Gaza, against Gazans. Uh, that's what's hurting Biden the most with, with young people and black people, um, in spite of a, a very impressive presidential record in terms of getting policy passed. Uh, B- Biden's been an extremely effective president, um, but on, where he you know, jumped the shark is when he went over and hugged Netanyahu, and that's going to be hard to overcome and alienates people. And, and then domestically, the Democrats are prioritizing immigrants and migrants over um, uh, local Americans. And then Ukraine um, giving billions, of, hundreds and billions of dollars to Ukraine uh, for war, to Israel for war. People are watching this while they broke. They're, trying to, they're struggling. They're trying to pay their bills. The average American doesn't have any money saved, uh, can't afford a car breakdown. Um, and yet they're looking at people being given Social Security. In Chicago and in Boston and other cities, San Francisco, uh, the sanctuary cities, um, that's a real problem. Uh, but Ronald Walters, again from Howard, he was clear that black politicians uh, in the Democratic Party will go with the party's initiatives rather than with the black community's initiatives. And for that reason, we got more black politicians uh, talking about migrants like, uh, like uh, Adams in New York um, then they do. Then they do talk about issues impacting African American people. 
Yeah, and we got to be careful if they don't play because they're playing us against the migrants, and that's why they mm-hmm. instead of sending them to Wyoming or the Dakotas, they send them to to uh, black cities. You know, so because they know that that's the problem. They put them on their doorsteps, and and then they want black folks to get upset with the migrants. The migrants, the black folks, the the mayors didn't you know say you know bring them in there. They were dumped by people like Abbott and and uh, right. and uh, what's his name in Florida. But I want to ask yeah. you about. Uh, um, Michigan, though, because Michigan, he, uh, Biden has a problem with Michigan because of, of, of what's going Because Michigan, especially Dearborn, where, where a, a lot of oh, yeah. Arab Americans live. If, is this going to be a key issue? It looks like he may have to give up Michigan because you, you talked about what, how he treated the Arab. You talk, you talk about, uh, again, the migrant issue. It seems like all the issues are dumped on, on the state of Michigan, and it's a key state for, for anybody who's running for the presidency. Is there a way back for Biden? If Biden said reparations, I'm saying it would overcome the the Muslim effect in Michigan. Because if you look at the 2016 and 2020 elections in every city in America, black people, if they came out in their real numbers rather than who showed up, could have taken over a whole bunch of political. uh, You know, the Democrats could have won all over the all over the country in places like St. Louis and Detroit and um, and Chicago where, you know, black folk stayed home. You know, they didn't come out in masses like they did for, 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 for Biden. So if, if Biden, again, could get the black vote to offset it in Michigan, in Detroit, and, 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 and the surrounding areas, Ann Arbor and, and places around there, sure. But the Muslim community, is that's part of the problem. When Biden took the policy position he's took it, taken, um, uh, the Democrats nationally are mimicking and following Biden's position. Recently, London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, on Martin Luther King's birthday, condemned the city council of San Francisco because it uh, passed a ceasefire resolution. So on the day that the city council of San Francisco asked for peace, the black woman mayor, Democrat, did, uh, condemned them calling for peace, and she did it on Martin Luther King's birthday. That's how blind they are. She couldn't even see the contradiction of, of condemning a call for peace on Martin Luther King's birthday. And so Lyndon Breed is, is towing the party line. She, her position is Biden's position on everything. And it's also the case in Palestine, in San Francisco, uh, the largest city in America, to call for a ceasefire. The black Democrat threw water on it to try to downplay it so that she wouldn't alienate the people that actually back her up financially and otherwise. All right, and the tweet I just added all of Trump's employees at Mar-a-Lago and his place in Bedminster, New Jersey, are illegal immigrants. And there was some truth to that because they, 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 they did a survey and found out a lot of those people who work in those two places that Trump owns are immigrants. But I want, I want to talk about the fact that the young people seem to have left uh, the Democratic Party. It seems to be in an abeyance. They, what, is there anything that, that Joe Biden can do to win the young people back? That's a great question. Um, I think it's an image issue. It's, you know, they, they don't feel any connection to him. He doesn't use the um, father of the country thing well that uh, FDR used, Reagan used, and LBJ. Biden should be calling himself like the father of the nation. Like LBJ did that really well. He talked about himself as your president to personalize it. Biden is older, right? So Biden has to play that role of, a, of an elder father, you know, instead of, um, instead of the old man that they can't relate to. Um, uh, and again, it's about policies. You know, the, the abortion issue is going to be an issue f- for young women. 
it's go, it is mo, it is self mobilizing, even though the Democrats support you know women's rights, um, uh, and all of the Republicans you know have even even Nikki Haley have a conservative position. I think there are issues like abortion that will drive some young young people out, but there's definitely a disconnect. That that that's undeniable, and I think that's where the Democrats fail in terms of investing in young black people in the infrastructure of black media. They should be funding young people with, you know, blogs and podcasts. They should be funding radio programs. They should be funding your show. They should be funding Roland Martin. They should be funding black radio in L.A., KGLH. They should be running commercials all over black America to bring that money, to bring the money that campaigns bring. That's what the Democrats continue to do. That's how they continue to fail us. After an election, we don't have any kind of infrastructure in place after you know, each, each cycle. So we have to do a better job of fighting for them to invest in, you know, in the black businesses related to um, elections. I'm talking about radio, TV, blogs, um, you know, other technologies, AI, or whatever is out there. Uh, it should be put to use. But it should be used, be used as a strategy to mobilize black people, to mobilize young people, to speak to them where they are, to, to speak to their needs. Biden can go to young people and talk about loan, student loan forgiveness. Um, Biden can talk about the fact that he's given, promised 50, I think it was $500 billion, $500 billion to the HBCUs. That's, that's what Biden's promise, $500 billion. Trump gave $500 million. Biden's given $500 billion, I believe it is, um, to the HBCUs over the next, you know, he's earmarking it for, the, you know, yeah. for, for future rollout. Um, and that's significant. And if you right. And, and that, Doc, we just, we're just about flat out of time again. The question is, uh, we'll pick it up next time. Does, does he have the time? Does he have the time to, to, to you know, mend those fences? That's a great question. But, Great yeah, but, but before we let you go, uh, Dr. Taylor, how can folks follow you uh, on social media and the, your latest book? Yeah, the the um, the social media is uh, James Taylor uh, sixteen ninety nine on uh, Instagram, and um, my book I'm working on. I'm still write, I'm writing my last chapters of the uh, book I've been working on on uh, People's Temple and Jim Jones. That's why I know so much about the five percenters and the nation of Islam is like, I'm writing the book on this. I'm like the expert on the urban cult. So, so don't come talking to me about that stuff. Cause I can tell you about it and tell you that it's actually a power that we had in this country to become independent, but we look down on it because of the religious content of it. But we have to figure something out going forward. If we're going to survive in this land. All right. Thanks, Dr. Taylor. Thanks for the information Thank this you. morning. All right, fine, folks, that's Dr. James Taylor. We're finished for the day. Stay strong, stay positive. Please, please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. And also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.